0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of Political Beats. It's a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter, at Political underscore Beats, to join in the conversation. We also invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or tune in. Plus, right there at NationalReview.com, we invite you to listen, enjoy, share, please leave reviews. Political Beats, the show where we talk to people in and around the world of politics... Covering politics, analyzing politics—you name it—but nothing political whatsoever. We only talk about music here, and about our guests' uh, favorite or at least chosen band or artist. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, standing by, or sometimes sitting, Jeff Blair at Esoteric CD on Twitter. Hey, Dad, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, and indeed,
1: I am sitting here. I'm sitting here so patiently, just waiting to find out what price I have
0: to pay to get out of going through this show (laughs) twice. Or, uh, I guess in this case, three times. Three times, we believe. Yes, three times, we believe. Uh, Jeff at Esoteric CD, as I mentioned. And our guest for this episode, he is a senior editor at The Daily Beast, overseeing breaking news, political media, and occasionally music coverage. By night, an alt-country singer-songwriter perhaps looking to switch careers at some point his twitter handle at andrew Carell, and andrew Carell is our guest on this political beats andrew how are you
2: good thanks for having me
0: we appreciate you jumping on with us to talk about yep. the artist which we'll get to in one moment but before we intro our artist for today's episode we'd like to find out a little bit more about the guest joining us on the program and specifically how you ended up in uh, in your quote-unquote political beats. so andrew how did you end up in, the, in this political ecosystem
2: It's a long-winded story that I will cut down here, but uh, I wanted to be a high school economics teacher, well, social studies teacher, when I was in college. And then I somehow got connected with uh, ABC News internship for 2020 and uh, I happened to work under John Stossel. And um, I was there for about 10 months as an intern, but I was there five days a week working my butt off and I basically became a production assistant at ABC News while I was there. Uh, and then Stossel moved to Fox Business Network and took his producers and took me, lucky. Uh, so I moved over to Fox Business and I was a producer in cable news after having produced uh, some news magazine style documentary stuff for ABC. And uh, I worked in cable news, which is uh a slog, shall we say? <laughs> and I was there for three years. Uh, you know, Stossel's, uh, taught me how to write with uh, you know e- economy of words, as I would describe it. Uh, you know, writing concise, uh, being very thorough in your fact checking. And I learned a lot about journalism at a place where uh, not a lot of journalism is practiced. And uh, at a certain point, though, it got to be too much. Cable news is just kind of embarrassing place to work, especially Fox for me. Um, so. I wanted to write about cable news and sort of write about the trivialities and the stupidity that goes on in the entire business. So, cold emailed uh, Dan Abrams at Mediaite and ended up moving over there right around the 2012 election, and uh, eventually became editor in chief of Mediaite. And uh, I wanted to branch out a little bit and do more than 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 sort of limit myself to media reporting. Uh, so, about three years later, I. Uh, I wanted to join my friends at the Daily Beast, so I came over to the Daily Beast and uh, it, the history was written there. A lot of, I still, of course, cover media now because, mm-hmm. you know, once you've worked in cable news, you you know too much, <laughs> and you've seen too much. Uh, and once you've written about it for three years and constantly writing, you know, sort of acid-tongued diatribes against all forms of cable news, you you know, you just, you can't get off the beat. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a wild ride, especially now to oversee breaking news where it just feels like it's absolutely unending and that's why i cover music occasionally because it's the only respite i get
0: and <laughs> yeah, that's why you join us here today on the show to talk a little um, music yeah, um, exactly yep and so we uh, come to our our artist today and you know we just did the beatles and uh you know you don't really have to introduce the beatles and uh, that's pretty much the same way for for our artist in today's episode a, a man who quite literally needs no introduction and so i won't it's bob dylan Bob Dylan, our, our, uh, our artist, we're planning on spending at least three episodes to cut through Bob Dylan's career, and as we get started, we turn back to Andrew, and we ask you, why do you love Bob Dylan? How did you get into his music? Why should anybody else really care about the music of Bob Dylan? Oh man Because nobody cares About Bob Dylan Andrew You're <laughs> going to have You're going to have To make you got to sell us That's
2: right To millions
1: and millions Of listeners The
2: world over So see there's this guy Robert Zimmerman You never heard of You know <laughs> For me it's it's Everybody has their Come into Bob Dylan moment um, You know There's I think Everybody who Even passingly Liked Bob Dylan Has that moment Where they can tell you Yeah you know I love that song Or you know I know that album Or that iconic image Of Bob Dylan Or even if they don't even if there's a passive listener who's never really gotten into Bob Dylan, they know him, and so everybody has their moment, and I think the common theme for a lot of people, especially me, uh, and it's almost a cliche when you talk about Bob, is uh, the common theme being that people come to Dylan at an age or a point in your life where you're looking to to understand something outside of yourself, to to make sense of this like unending deluge of, of shit we face as daily people, as people on a daily basis, you know, uh, the human condition, et cetera, et cetera, all the other cliches you can throw in there. And uh I don't remember the first time I heard Bob Dylan because he's so ubiquitous. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I don't I don't have that story like I would for other artists, that very specific or more niche artists. Um, you know, I don't have a specific I first heard Bob Dylan and it, you know, my mind opened up. It's more, you know, you think about his music and his chameleon coolness, and it's just imprinted in every subgenre of rock and roll, and everything that has been rock and roll for the last fifty, almost sixty years. His fingerprints are all over everything. But if I really think about it hard, what what was my my you know I'm I'm a, a Jew, but what what was my baptism to Bob Dylan? And my rock and roll baptism was like a Rolling Stone. I think that's for a lot of people. And I didn't realize it until years later, uh, you know, because I'd always, you know, I'd listen to Bob. I grew up; my parents listened to oldies station when I grew up, so I, I, I was, you know, I listened to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel and, uh, you know, The Who. My father loved and Jethro Toll and uh, a lot of doo wop, a lot of Roy Orbison. So I, I grew up listening to that stuff. And you obviously hear Bob Dylan when you come across all that stuff. You hear, you know, like a Rolling Stone is a classic rock radio staple. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't realize how much. It was that first experience for me until, you know, when I was years after I had first had my, you know, I love Bob Dylan experience um, until I read an interview with Bruce Springsteen in uh, Rolling Stone where he described riding in the car with his mother in 66, I guess. And he must've been what, 16 or 17 years old, which is actually late for him. But, uh, and he described how on the radio came the exact quote is that snare shot that sounded like somebody kicked open the door to your mind.
3: Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, Do the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. People call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall, you thought they were all.
2: That's exactly it like you know that's exactly that's exactly it man like that's that's what like a rolling stone was it, it, it you know six minute rock and roll odyssey that you know at the time probably was unheard of because you know most radio play was limited to three minutes so i'm sure we're going to talk about it a bunch uh but that was it for me that was that was the rock and roll baptism because i think about what album did I burn through the most when I was first really, really just digging into all his albums after being, you know, just growing up hearing his songs and not really thinking much more about it, was Highway 61 Revisited, and that's, I think, a lot of people's experience, and uh, I'm excited to talk about this first period actually, the first, I guess, decade we'll we'll go through of his career first, because um, I haven't thought about it in forever. I listened to you know, uh, Times They Are changing through Blonde on Blonde which uh, aren't all the albums we're going to talk about, but I listened to those that period before he really sort of got weird and maybe a more a little more emotionally uh forthright in his music. I listened to that stuff so much maybe ten to fifteen years ago that I almost got sick of it <laughs> and you know and so it's really exciting for me to talk about that because I haven't thought about it in a long time, and it's like bringing back a lot of memories and like what it meant to really to connect to something when you're young and see that music doesn't have to be trite, music doesn't have to be uh you know the best pop songs you know they can mean a lot to you but they can often be throwaway. and there's something about the way Dylan wrote that really just it puts it it turns on a light bulb in your mind where you you can see love songs in a different way you can see acidic barbs against people that you know bother you or politicians you see it in a different way and there's different ways to use language and it. it just really as somebody who's a career writer that obviously means a lot it, you know you, you think about Describing things in a much more not purple prose way, because Dylan was never really purple prose. He was just he just knew how to put the right words in the right place and and pull out from biblical text and pull out from from you know Dylan Thomas and you know poets and everybody or Rimbaud and uh, it makes sense actually that this period would be the gateway for any young person and you know it's sort of the pitch I would make to young people even now you know Generation Z or whatever we're calling them. Uh, to get into Bob Dylan it would have to be this period because mm-hmm. it's got it's got it all. It's got the the angsty you know angsty politics perhaps, but also the angst of just just general angst. It's just apocalyptic Cold War music that You know, that that feeling of of a a burning sensation hasn't really gone away. It's acid tongued. It's misanthropic. It's motorcycle driving. Cool. Like it's got all of that stuff. And that's the stuff that appeals to like when you're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. That's just that kicks you right in the gut and makes you, you know, that's who you want to be. If you want to set out and search for America and find yourself as a teenager, you could just find it right there in that period because it's got all of it. And that's—I uh, think—that's my spiel on Bob Dylan.
0: <laughs> well, I'll say—I'll tell you briefly. I, I would imagine I, I came to Dylan probably later than than both of you guys. Dylan was on a pile for me of, of artists that I, I just pushed off until I had the proper time to actually. Uh, devote to understanding and appreciating a catalog. Uh, the same way with Elvis Costello, I, I I just pushed the enormity of the catalog, the the different styles, all of that. I just had to push it off until I was ready. And actually, I, I got into uh, Elvis even before I got into uh, to a lot of Dylan stuff. And it was really early twenties. I was taking a lot of long train rides uh, into the city, into Chicago for for work. So I had these you know blocks of time each day that really could be devoted to uh, to listening to music without a whole lot of distractions at all. And that's when I started to really listen to uh, a, a lot of Dylan, beginning with with this period. I, I think, I think like Andrew, Highway 61 was almost certainly my first uh, Dylan album. And part of the excitement for me about going through this period was, uh, I don't know how true this is, for me it was true, that, that Dylan in my mind was this, um, you know, folky protest singer, uh, by and large. Especially in, in in the '60s, in my mind, and even through the '60s, as as you know, we'll discuss. That's not true, not totally true, and it's certainly not what he wanted uh, to be known for for uh, the back part of the decade. And then certainly, as we get past that in, in our episode two and three, things change even more. But discovering all the uh, not misdirections, but separate directions, some of the music would take just in this, this brief period, this what eight-year, seven-year period we're going to cover during this episode. Um, is amazing. Um, and, and as we get later into the career, I'm telling you now, there's going to be some things we'll discuss that I'm perhaps hearing for just a first or second time because I just came to the artist so late. But uh, th- this first decade is is some of the most important and, and I think when you get down to it, uh, some of the best music ever made. There's no doubt about it.
1: I mean... I hate to sound like Bruce Springsteen. Believe me, I do. But but my first experience with Bob Dylan was indeed traveling in my car with my dad. <laughs> and it wasn't the radio. It was my dad's tape because my dad was a confirmed Dylan fan. He was an old folky. I mean, like we're talking Ian and Sylvia, Clancy Brothers, old school New York folky going all the way back to the 60s. And, of course, he loved Dylan. So what does he put on for me? Puts on like a Rolling Stone. I think I've even covered this story in a prior episode. Zone, you know and then what was my reaction was my reaction that you know the, were the doors of my mind kicked open was i suddenly awakened to this beautiful beautiful world of, of music and, and lyrics and you know rock poetry no hell no i i hated this guy's voice i couldn't stand it i told my dad to turn this god-awful caterwauling <laughs> off i said i wanted to listen to madonna put on phil collins dad i want to hear another day in paradise again
0: gated I drums that's what you need
1: yeah, I you know, it, it's it's something that my brother would endlessly make fun of uh, me for for like, you know, and probably to this day, in fact, he he would remember it that he always liked the needle me after I became such a huge classic rock fan and a huge Dylan fan. He's like, Yeah, Jeff, yeah, you think you're all high and mighty now, but I remember I was listening to, to you know Highway Sixty One Revisited when you were listening to, to Phil Collins's butt seriously. And it's true. It was. I did not immediately take to Dylan. There was something about the the tone of his voice that i think set me off at first i i had to develop uh, uh an acculturation with him with his approach first and you know i'm not really embarrassed to admit that now because actually now i've become a kind of a fan of non-traditional voices i actually would argue that mick jagger is as a non-traditional mm-hmm. a singing voice in in many ways as bob dylan's is and we just don't notice it as much mm-hmm. because of the kind of music that the rolling stones play um What happened for me when I really got into them was uh, like a lot of kids. You know, you start exploring, you know, in high school, you start exploring the Beatles, you start exploring the Who, you start exploring, you know, the Stones. And then, of course, you get into Dylan. My dad had already had these records. He had Freewheeling, he had um, Times They Are a Change, and he had Highway 61. He had them all on record. My brother had some of the CDs. I looked at all those, and I started listening to those, and then I, you know, listened to the CDs in my family's collection, and then I started buying my own. And the one that really, actually flattened me, you know, I would eventually become a completist, getting everything. But the one that really just completely destroyed my mind was bringing it all back home. Of all of them, Uh, I could not comprehend how this album could be this good. And yet, the only song on the, the Greatest Hits album, uh, the famous Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, was Subterranean Homesick Blues. And I, I, I just didn't understand how... Well, wait, this is the one... Oh, Mr. Tambourine Man was also on there. I still think Mr. Tambourine Man's one of the weakest songs on that album. Yeah. I heard these songs fly by me, she belongs to me, love minus zero, Maggie's farm, it's all right, ma, I'm only bleeding, it's all over now, baby blue. All these songs just... Um, When I was 15, 16 years old, they destroyed me uh, and they rebuilt me again basically from scratch.
3: 20 years of schooling and they put you on the day shift Look out, kid, they keep it all hit Better jump down a manhole, like yourself a candle Don't wear sandals, try to force the scandal Don't wanna be a bum, you better chew gum The pump don't work, cause the vandals took the handle
1: And I I found that I had a new love. And then from that point on, I was obsessed. You know, I I started getting everything. I got the bootleg series. I started, you know, every day. I remember convincing, like, a friend of mine who was a senior in high school. We skipped school for the day and went to the mall instead. I convinced him because I had no money to to buy me a copy of Bob Dylan's Self Portrait because I (laughs) knew it was a bad album and I didn't want to spend money on it myself. So I convinced him to buy it for me. <laughs> and I still don't regret it because I still actually will make arguments in favor of that album. Now I am the guy with a thousand Dylan hot takes. I think like every truly obsessive fan of Dylan's, I'm sure Andrew was in the same boat. Yep. <laughs> yep, I mean, I got, I can come at, uh, come at this artist from 17,000 different ways, 17,000 different arguments. And there's really no point in me trying to explain what each one of those are. You might as well just cover them while as we get to them. And so I'm going to you know cut through all of, that slack because you know everybody has a story of coming to dylan and unless you were a guy who was playing next to him in greenwich village you know at Gerd's folk city or something like that your story isn't that amazing because because we're all the same we all discovered him in a lot of the <laughs> same ways um my dad saw him play live that's pretty cool uh, like in in 60 in like 62 or something like that before he became a rock star uh that is a pretty neat story but for the rest of us we're all discovering what the rest of the world discovered before us so let's explain how the rest of the world managed to discover him. And what's the short story uh jewish kid from rural minnesota makes good I guess that's the quickest way of explaining it. Dylan born in Hibbing, Minnesota, which is the north country of Minnesota. It's near Duluth. Uh, it is the Iron Range. It's a, you know a suburb of a mining town cold as cold gets (laughs) uh and you know first of all you always wonder like was his like was he the only jewish family in hibbing minnesota because you know you just imagine this you know pop you know populated by gruff scandinavians or, or scandahoovians i suppose um but he came from hibbing you know he he leaves there he goes i think to the university of minnesota for a year drops out picks up folk music binds his way to New York City he discovers that he has a real special talent and that talent isn't for writing lyrics yet which is the interesting thing that talent was developing it was germinating within him all this time but his original initial talent was as a mimic -hmm. That he could listen to someone play a song and he could listen to it maybe once or maybe twice, and then he'd have it. He'd watch their hands play the chords, he'd listen to the words of the song, and then he could, you know, without like writing it down or using like a lead sheet, he could then play the song himself. So, very quickly, he built up this repertoire of songs and he sang. The thing about Dylan's voice Dylan's voice has always been something of a put on. Something of uh, of an imposture, even though it sounds so real and so strange and so authentic. Um, it was originally supposed to be an imitation of sort of that that rural midwestern Woody Guthrie kind of a tone. In fact, he he kind of leans into it very intentionally. Mm-hmm. On with God on our side. On times they are changing. Whereas you know, what is it? My uh, my name. It's nothing. My age. It means less. The town I'm from is called the Midwest. He's like, yes, look at me. The you know embodiment of midwestern authenticity. So I'm singing in this sort of You know, oaky hick voice. That wasn't his real singing voice. His real singing voice is this sort of gummy sound that you hear on something like Nashville Skyline. Mm -hmm. But that rough hue nature, which was also real in its own way, was so striking. And even though it was so like untutored and you know you know untraditional in any way that we would normally describe norm you know like classic singing that you would want to hear on the radio this is a million miles away from frank Sinatra it, it it was gripping it was transfixing once you heard it, once you heard him sing words, these old folk tunes in that voice they had new meaning breathed into him and of course he was discovered by a very famous folk uh producer folk musician himself guy by the name of john hammond who was a uh, an R guy for columbia records who said you know i gotta get this guy this guy is amazing you know this guy who just literally basically hopped off the rails or at least had the pretense to be a bumpkin who just fell off the back of a turnip truck and he's in new york city and now he's singing these sophisticated folk songs in this very interesting timbre and interesting tone hammond said i'm gonna get this guy into a studio we're going to sign him we're going to put out an album. What is that album? This album was recorded in uh, I believe December or November of 1961. That is the beginning of Bob Dylan's official recorded career and the name of that album is Bob Dylan. Um his self-titled album, his self-titled debut and you know as I think most people would agree probably maybe you know the most unprepossessing album of this early era you know certainly it's no knocked out loaded in terms of quality uh it's no down in the groove in terms of its if, if, of its uh awesomeness but i think there there is a lot of interesting things to recommend this album i guess i want to let uh andrew start first with his opinion on this which i think really sort of sits apart from the rest of what would come in, in a lot of interesting ways for this early phase of Dylan's
4: career
2: yeah it's it's more important than it is good i guess is the is the uh, the bottom line uh and i think there's only two original songs on there so you really don't get to hear much of what was to come in the sense of like how good of a songwriter he was and i think one of the songs on there that was original was one of his his talking blues which yeah. i've always found to be uh, once you've heard one talking blues by Bob Dylan, you've heard them all. <laughs>
1: yeah, they're all pretty ponderous, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, th- some of them are funny. The one with the, uh, I forget which one has the reference to Barry Goldwater. If I move into next to Barry Goldwater, won't let him marry my daughter or whatever.
1: I think that's I-, I shall be free, I think.
2: I- is it on I shall be free?
1: Yeah, it's I, a- I shall be
0: it. free.
2: It's
1: on free Willing, Yeah, I
2: think so. Yeah, yep. it's one of his talking blues songs. But yeah, it, not on this album. But uh, there's some, I mean, what I loved about this song, about this album was. Um, I think at the time that I really was listening to this album, it was a very brief period. It, I was also listening to like Odetta, and uh, you know a lot of the sort of thumping, just New York folk, but also a lot of that traditional, almost like uh, I don't know how you would describe it, uh, just pre-rock people who are influenced by just the sort of Alan Lomax going through the swamps of the South and recording all these beautiful gospel songs and these yeah, beautiful...
1: The field traditions. recording type stuff. Field recording, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. And so you get Pretty Peggy-O, which, of course, is just a timeless song and has been made beautiful by other bands like The Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And you get Man of Constant Sorrow, which is another great traditional, which he does really well. And, of course, the House of the Rising Sun, which, you know, I think, actually, he stole the arrangement on House of the Rising Sun on this yes. album from Dave Van Ronk, who will always live in the shadow of Bob Dylan... Uh, Even though I think that a lot of people would say this album was him mimicking Dave Van Ronk, another Greenwich Village folky who never had his big break like Dylan did. Uh, But actually, I think my favorite song on the album when I was listening to it was Gospel Plow. And I don't really know why. I guess maybe because it's so dark and so brief. I think it starts the second side of the album and it's a traditional. um, But it's, you know, for me, a lot of, I guess for whatever reason a lot of the songs about that Dylan written whenever he whenever it's about burial and about you know inevitable death I think he was like well, he, he must have been early 20s when he when he recorded this album and he was recording some really yes. heavy heavy traditionals uh, you know and, and and arranging them too in very clever ways I think
3: keep your hand on that flag.
2: You know, Man of Constant Sorrow. I think the way that we hear it now, and I think the way it was used in Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, was because of Bob Dylan's arrangement of that. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an important album to listen to. But I don't think I've ever re- revisited it in maybe the last five years. Oh, there's I another group. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, I was going to say I think this album is far more important for who it influenced than for what it is, and on its own terms. So I agree with you with that. But if you think about it, this album, particularly for Brits seem to have like a huge influence. So in mm-hmm. my time of dying became right. you know the big Led Zeppelin standard. You know, uh, you know, baby, let me follow you down. Of course, was done by a, by a whole host of people. Dylan himself did actually a pretty convincing reinterpretation of it. Yep. Yeah. House of the Rising Sun with the animals, and uh, Pretty Peggy O with with uh, the Grateful Dead. Man, of constant sorrow had a great reinterpretation by Rod Stewart and Ron Wood on his, Rod Stewart's first album. Uh, you know, when he was you know still kind of an authentic artist, as opposed to the guy who does Do You Think I'm Sexy. Um, it's a great song it's a great song and there's you know ironically enough for me at least my 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 key thought about the first album is that the single best song on it was left off the record and i'll never understand why it's a song called house carpenter by the way for those Mm. listening we're going to keep referring to like the bootleg series and all these things at the end of this long long extravaganza we're going (laughs) to probably take a little time to discuss the whole series of bootleg series releases um but the uh first one Bootleg Series Volumes 1 through 3. It's a three-CD set. It kind of does, you know, runs through his career from the beginning to 1991 and uh, it opens pretty much nearly with House Carpenters, the outtake from the first session. It's the most intense thing. Another traditional, you know, well-met, well-met my old, my old dear love uh, a song about a woman who abandons her husband to run away with a sailor at sea who actually ends up turning up turning out to be like an evil spirit who lures women to their deaths in the deepest bottom of the ocean really really kind of scary dark dark stuff (laughs) english traditional balladry um don't know why he left it off the album don't know why the first of many perverse creative decisions that bob dylan would be making with regards to his music
3: oh what are those hills yonder my love they look as white as snow those are the hills of heaven, my love For well, you and I, I'll never know What are those hills yonder, my love They look as dark as night Those are the hills of hellfire, my love For well, you and I, I will unite
1: But yeah, other than that this is this is an album that was more in, interesting for what it signaled than for what it actually is it
0: I'm, didn't It didn't sell uh, at all. <laughs> I think five thousand copies is what I had read at one point, point. and um, I, I can't say the public was necessarily wrong on, on this uh, because it's not, it's not a great album. Um, But to look at that cover and and see that picture of Bob Dylan, you know, it it was nearly a teenager or nearly still a teenager, I should say. And that voice and that delivery coming from that picture on the cover is still something to behold. He's still figuring out that voice, that delivery that Jeff talked about. He's not a a great singer here. He's not even, you know, Bob Dylan quality uh, singer on a lot of the stuff on the album. Um, I, and actually, uh, you know, Andrew, like Gospel Plow, that's one of my least favorites, I think because of the delivery on on Gospel Plow, oh. um, Pretty Peggy O, Highway Fifty One Blues, Freight Train Blues, kind of unremarkable um, stuff. The first, the first third or so of the album with You're No Good, which is played at a really breakneck speed, um, is a nice song. Uh, talk in New York, which again, you hear one talk, and you've kind of heard most of them, but that's that's a a, a decent one. And then I think his version of, of "In my time of Dying features a really great vocal and if I have my stuff correct the, 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 you know this is often the case with Dylan. you know the first time he played that song is the time that ends up on the album I mean one cut and, and go. especially on this first album, I think Hammond was frustrated because he wouldn't do second takes. You just play the song once, that's how I play the song and, and it's done.
3: Oh in my time of dying the one nobody to cry. All I want you to do is take me when I die well well well, so I can die easy well 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 so I can die easy Jesus is gonna make up Jesus is gonna make up Jesus is gonna make him a dying bit.
0: So, you know there are a couple of things you want to hear you want to hear his version house of the rising sun more than likely but uh the 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 really uh, intriguing stuff is is just around the corner
1: i mean of course that inevitably takes us to that corner which is the moment where bob dylan becomes iconic and he blows up and of course the second album of bob dylan's career Is one of the most famous albums of Bob Dylan's career, certainly one of the most famous titles of Bob Dylan's career, and covers for that matter. It's the freewheeling Bob Dylan. You have seen this album before in the stores, on TV, on the Mm -hmm. internet. It's the picture of him walking down the street during a cold winter's day in New York City with his girlfriend, Suze Rotolo, clutching him. Just an iconic image. It's been imitated a thousand times. I think every guy... You know, of a certain age, my dad included <laughs> in the sixties, kinda wished he was Dylan and that girl was the girl clinging to his arm. It, it's just a beautiful image. And the music, of course, inside it is equally as famous. This is the album that begins with blowing in the wind and it has a hard rate and it's gonna fall. And Masters of War, I shall be free, hundred you know, countless other famous songs. The first and most important thing I want to emphasize about uh, The Freewheel and Bob Dylan is that this is an album that took a full year to record Yes, which people don't understand this didn't come out until 1963 the entire year in 1962 and early 1963 was given over to recording this album because this is the first time it certainly would not be the last time where Dylan had a massive rethink about what it was he was doing if you go listen the entire all the sessions to this album Been released in one form or another. If you're a true hardcore fan, you know where to find this music. I've listened to it all from start to finish. I think it's pretty hard going. It's a pretty thorough slog unless you're a Dylan fanatic like I am. But what you notice is that at the beginning of these sessions in in 1962, in the early early months of that year, he's still in that Bob Dylan mode, that debut album mode. He's recording traditional songs. He's recording, you know, blues. That's his new big trick. He's like trying, you know, these sort of, you know, you know, black blues songs moved into a folk milieu uh he doesn't really have a lot of original material uh what he does try to do is try to bring in an electric band for the first time and he does it with songs like mixed up confusion which would end up getting released as a single wouldn't make it onto the album it's not a very interesting song he tried it with karina karina which oh. he would eventually ditch and he did just he went with a much more restrained version of that one i think it's a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't have original material, though, with the exception, I think, of a very excellent song that actually got cut from the album called Let Me Die in My Footsteps. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let Me Die in My Footsteps is an anti nuclear uh, war song. He says, I will not go down under the ground. Uh, when people tell me it's time to go, basically saying I don't want to you know, participate in these, these nuclear drills and live in fear of nuclear war. Uh, I'll just die in my footsteps right here on the land before I go down under the ground. Very much a prefiguring of what would happen uh, several months later when he came up with a whole new sheaf of songs anchored. Uh, by two in particular, one of which is Blowing in the Wind, about which, in my opinion, the less said the better. I'm not a <laughs> fan of it. Uh, but the other one is one of the most iconic songs of his career and a song that will never age. And it's a hard rains are going to fall, which was inspired by the Cuban Missile Crisis. His reaction to a moment which uh, none of us of our age can truly understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had explained to me by my father. He's like, listen, Jeff, you, you, you just don't get it. Like We thought we were going to die. We thought like literally any moment, you know, they're going to tell us to get underneath our desks and the missiles were going to hit. We really just did not know how this will go. And it's easy for us to sit there and say, OK, well, of course, cooler heads were going to prevail. They didn't know that, especially when you're, you're a kid, when you're young. Um, nobody knew how that was going to end up playing out. And of all the reactions to the Cuban Missile Crisis that were ever recorded, a hard rain's going to fall is the one that still hits now just as hard as it ever did because it doesn't just take in that nuclear paranoia that fear of instant death uh, even though that's what's implied by the title you know the hard rain which is of course you know the bombs falling uh it, it talks about all sorts of other social you know ills and, and civil anxieties you know as so i so i met a white man who walked a black dog do doesn't take a genius to figure out what he's talking about there. Uh, but even more obscure things, like I met one man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded in hatred. Who knows what that means? He found his poetic voice on this song, not on Blowing in the Wind, but on this song in particular. And after A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall... Dylan was never the same, and it was this song that actually made him the toast of the New York folk scene. Everyone else recognized it, too.
4: And
3: I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking And I'll know my song well before I start singing. And it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And it's hard. It's hard. Rains are gonna fall.
2: I I think I once wrote when I ranked the albums uh, last year. For the beast um that this is the album that automatically cemented his status unwanted so i mean as we'll talk about later of being the so-called voice of the generation i mean just it's a staggering achievement of protest music but also just sardonic songwriting about it. what he did here and some of it is ham-fisted which is still early in dylan's career you know he's still you know a young guy who's writing about politics and the problem for me with a lot of political music you know I love a lot of political music but the problem with a lot of it is often that people write around wanting to tell a story wanting to make a specific point and then the music comes second but with Dylan it's like it's just all one piece together and he incorporated this the language of social change in the early 60s into this really sardonic and like I've, I've said before acid-tongued very um, sometimes cryptic like in Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and then other, the opposite of that we blown in the wind where it's not its not difficult to figure out what he's talking about there uh, and Masters of War which is it's kind of it's ham-fisted in a lot of its message but it's, it, it's you know you have to think you have to put yourself in that period and think about what he was reacting to. And that was, you know, the military-industrial complex, mm-hmm. you know, the Eisenhower quote and all that. So there there's a lot here that he was taking the language of the time and turning it into actually gorgeous and almost staggeringly good music for somebody of his age at the time. And then also on top of that, you like what's also I think great about this album is that there's the lovely sort of the hinting at his ability to write really sweet. Love songs. "Karina, yes. Karina is beautiful." Here, it's, it's a traditional. Obviously, he didn't write that. But um, "Girl from the North Country." I mean, you know that eventually, I think was done better when he did it with Johnny Cash. Uh, but it's
1: no, you no. Know, this, 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 this is, is the version.
0: Best.
2: I mean, the fingerpick version. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's gorgeous songwriting about love, and it's also coupled with all these political songs. And I think this is this is. And that, too, made him sort of the voice of the generation, because he wasn't writing I Want to Hold Your Hand. He was writing this beautiful, almost like Terence Malick, you know, sort of view of of this beautiful girl from the North Country. Of course, I think he was cribbing the melody from, um, uh, not Scarborough Fair, uh, from an English folk song. So, I mean, this was still early in, in his career where he was borrowing a lot from English folk. If you're traveling in the North Country Fire,
3: While the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there She once was a true lover
2: of mine For real, I mean, the only only thing I could say about it is just it's, it's staggeringly good. Like, this is, it's amazing that his second album is the one that just um, immediately made him like if he had not done much more after this he would still it would still be a legendary album
1: Did it's you? not perfect i i i i've never liked bob dylan's
2: blues yeah the talking world war three blues yeah
1: to- oh no i like talking world war three blues for one reason alone which it has that wonderful final couplet where he's like you know I, i'll let you be in my dream if i can be in yours yeah you that's know? right that's, that's just a great line that, that 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 always you know will that will always resonate but, you know, Honey, Just Allow Me One More Chance is a toss-up. Yeah. I don't like I Shall Be Free. I don't like, you know, uh, Bob Dylan's Dream. You know, Down the Highway is okay. You know, it's kind of like, you know, White Boy Blues, you know, 12-bar blues played by a guy from Hibbing, Minnesota who's Jewish. Yeah. I don't know. He would be able to pull this off when he got a lot older and a lot more wizened, and had a lot more like, you know, experience underneath his belt, but he still doesn't quite pull it off at this point. But, you know, the last thing I'm going to say, and I may be stealing something that Scott was going to say, so please God, forgive me, Scott. <laughs> but, um, you talk about Girl from the North Country as a love song. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a great anti-love song on this record as well, which is Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, well, that was one, another one that I still have like, you know, fond childhood memories of because my dad always pointed out how stinging those final words are. Yes. You know, you could have done better, but I don't mind. Mm-hmm. You just kind of wasted my precious time. But Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Oh man, this is such con- such contempt and hurt and and uh, oh wow! Just the way he conveys little subtle touches of feeling in uh, just by throwing in you know passing words and inflections in his voice. That's the. Part where he belies his age—that this guy is 22 years old when he records the song—and it sounds like, yeah, that could be like a 55-year-old <laughs> guy who's been through four divorces. That's like <laughs> you're like some cowboy out in the range who's like really you know had
0: loved and lost in a way that like a 22-year-old would not understand. <laughs> anyway, Scott. So, so yes, you you absolutely stole my thunder. Damn uh, it! I'm sorry. It's okay. So I'll start I'll start there and then and then move on. I, I think "Don't Think Twice" is 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 the standout track on on freewheeling Uh, it's a song that i wish i would have known earlier because those the sentiments (laughs) in here i could have used you know as, as a as a college kid uh you know the sadness and and the longing and yet the the acceptance um you know kind of kind of reflect on things but don't necessarily hold a grudge but yes that that end uh i'm not saying you treated me unkind you could have done better but i don't mind you just kind of wasted my precious time that that is oh that is pure pure poetry. Uh, Bruce Langhorne, that finger pick guitar on the track Mm -hmm. is, is just gorgeous. And uh, I I, I think it's the best. uh, I think it's the best song on on the album. So long
3: honey baby. Where I'm bound. I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word baby. So I just say fairly well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind You could have done better, but I don't mind You just kind of wasted my precious time Don't think twice, it's all right
0: Uh, Girl from the North Country um I, I listened to that and I I I didn't hear that song until after I had heard like Heartbreaker from Ryan Adams. And there's there's a lot of, of Heartbreaker that is taken from uh, this this period and I hear like oh, don't yeah. ask for the, don't ask for the water especially is very influenced by right. girl from the north country which is which is a gorgeous song and yeah I think this is the best version better than the Johnny Cash version that long harmonica blow to close the song is just is just brilliant hard rain's gonna fall I'm actually teaching a course in the fall here at Hillsdale on the Twilight Zone and Cold War America and I think I'm gonna play the class this song to put their minds in the same mindsets as the country around this time it does such a great job of that of of the fear um of the uncertainty of of in some cases or in some minds the inevitability of of war that is just around the corner hard Rain's going to fall to such a great job of taking that picture and making it extremely vivid uh for the listener Korean, uh, Korean is a beautiful song. I go really back and forth on I shall be free. Generally I don't like it. It's such a trivial, thrown off, improvised piece, and yet and yet it features some of that that humor and and the you know toss-offedness, which I'm making a word, that, that uh that Dylan is kind of known for and, and does better later on. So it's it's worth a listen. I'm not sure it's it kind of stands up all that well down the line. And, um, you know, Jeff oh, mentioned,
1: you, you really can't beat that line where he says, like, you know, I make love to Elizabeth Taylor, catch hell from Richard Burton. <laughs> that,
4: that's pretty good. You
1: know, that that's a pretty good line. I'll admit it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a slight song in, in, any, in any event. I think it's not as good as actually, I shall be free. Number 10, <laughs> you would you know, follow it up with, uh, we don't know about what happened to the other eight songs in between, but
0: yeah. And Jeff mentioned just real quick, you know, how, how this album or how the songs were, were changing. And I think Dylan, uh, was evolving so quickly. You, you know, there, there were songs taken off and replaced on this album just a few weeks before release, and some discussion, controversy about whether or not an Ed Sullivan appearance or lack thereof uh, influenced taking, like, talking John Birch Paranoid Blues off the album or not. But, you know, the songs that got on at that point, two of them were Girl from the North Country and Masters of War, which I think are, are pretty key. So I think Dylan was happy about that, too, because th- those songs are far more where he was then and the ones that were originally going to be on the album.
1: This takes us to Dylan's third album, which I will right now just openly say that I think is a disaster of sorts. This is the moment where Dylan's reputation caught up to him for the first time and I think in the last time. Uh, Later on, when he felt like he was feeling the pressure of expectations from critics, from culture, from you know, you know the masses at large telling him what it, they thought it was he should do. He instead of giving them what they wanted, he he ducked out. He threw a left turn. He said adios amigos. He did everything but what you expected him to do or wanted him to do, which I respect him so much for. This is the first and only time where I feel like he really compromised, and he said, "All right, you want this." Here it is take it you got it mm-hmm. the name of the album is the times they are a changing and if you're not familiar with Dylan you might think that that's a crazy thing to say because even people who know very little about Bob Dylan certainly know the times they are changing which is one of the most famous songs of his career come gra- come gather around people wherever you roam uh, it's you know the sort of the song that plays <clears throat> over documentary footage of civil rights protesters marching on dc admit that the waters around you have grown and that soon you'll be drenched to the bone uh, you would think well this must be a great album this must be a, a a stirring album of anthems of social protest and change i cannot tell you how boring hmm. dreary and downright intolerable I find most of the music on this album with the exception of three songs I would say and to me this album is is the sound of compromise which is why I think it's singular in Dylan's career he he got captured by his reputation as particularly among sort of the New York folk circle which embraced him as the new great kind of like liberal white Protest hope. Here is this guy whose whose songs are you know bending the ear of a nation, particularly once blowing in the wind and a hard rain's gonna fall. Took off, and they pressured him. So you've got to you got to you got to speak to the you know speak to the masses, speak about these injustices. And it, the bill never quite fit with him. He could write protest songs, but I felt like he wrote them much better when he wasn't being. Basically commanded at gunpoint mm-hmm. to do so, and so what he ended up doing is is releasing an album that is, is is monochromatic and in a bad way. You got songs on here like "Ballad of Hollis Brown" or "Only a Pawn in Their Game." Uh, you know, that North or one too one too many mornings, North Country Blues. These songs they have a good heart. They certainly have good intentions. You can't argue. I think with anything in them, except for with God on our side. I have oh. a friend. This is a story I love to tell. My friend John Kenny, a Jewish guy, by the way, who you know, we were big Dylan fans. We would always sit at home in high school and we'd listen to "With God on Our Side." And, and, and John himself, who had parents who I think fled the Holocaust, even when, when Dylan got to the line was like, you know, you know, the Germans and the, the ovens Germans. they fried. Yeah. You know, I guess even the Germans have God on our side. You know, John's famous line is like, "Oh, get off your high horse, Bob Dylan." Forget god's sake it's like so ham-fisted so ham-handed the, the sentiment is a, is an interesting one and a good one it ends with that line that i feel like he was building up to with the entire song if god's in our side then i'll stop the next war mm-hmm. he wrote the rest of it around it he didn't do a good job of it uh i just don't think the protest songs on this album have retained any kind of spirit of 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 vibrancy or of power in the present day they they seem entrapped in this cultural amber that just says 60s protest (laughs) uh i think that the the lone exception to that of the protest songs is uh one that that comes near the end of the album which is a song called the lonesome death of hattie Carroll.' That's a song about uh well you know it's a marylander i'm ashamed to admit it williams and zinger Killed poor Hattie Carroll. Beat him to death with a cane. Beat her to death with a cane. She was a servant, uh, and he gets the meter right. He talks about how you know this is a lowly servant who emptied the tables, cleaned the tables, and uh, this this you know impudent young punk of a man who with rich family connections beat her to death because he was just feeling in a bad mood that day. And then there's that refrain where he constantly says, you know, you who philosophize and criticize with your fears, you know. Take the rag away from your face. Now ain't the time for your tears. And then he gets to the end where he says, you know, the judge, you know, sternly and says, you know, you know that, that the law is equal and treats everyone fairly, handed out for penalty and repentance to William Inzinger, a seven-month sentence for murdering this woman. And then he says, now bury the rag in your face. Now is the time for your tears. That one works. That one still works. That one still hits hard. That is still a great song.
3: In the courtroom of honor, the judge pounded his gavel To show that all's equal and that the courts are on the level And that the strings in the books ain't pulled and persuaded And that even the nobles get properly handled Once that the cops have chased after and caught them and that the ladder of law Has no top and no bottom Stared at the person Who killed for no reason Who just happened to be feeling That way without warning And he spoke through his cloak Most deep and distinguished And handed out strongly For penalty and repentance Williams and Zenger With a six-month sentence Ah, but you who philosophize disgrace And criticize our fears Bury the rain deep in your face For now's the time for your tears
1: That's, ironically enough, the one song on this album that he never really seemed to perform that much. But for the rest of these songs, whether they're anthems or they're not, I just don't like it. I don't like the times they are changing. The songs that I like the most are the ones that aren't really particularly political. Like Boots of Spanish Leather, mm-hmm. which I think is a really, you know, kind of a sequel to Girl from the North Country. This song of painful yearning, and a, of, a, of, 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 you know, sadness and sort of, you know, a very, very kind of a sensual song. I guess maybe because, you know, Spanish leather puts me in that mind. And then the other one is When the Ship Comes In, which is kind of a protest song. It does sort of talk about change coming, but uh, it does it in a much more generalized way and a much more sort of boisterous way and arousing way than the drear of something like The Times There are changing. So I've just all over a really famous <laughs> and well-loved album everyone want to tell me why i'm wrong uh no i don't I, let me gonna,
0: yeah let me squeeze in because uh i always it's always interesting when you know jeff and i will disagree uh vociferously at times on al- albums and songs and i was heading into this this uh, episode and thinking man i'm gonna have to say bad things about the times they are changing and i don't know i don't know how it's going to go in the episode and and uh, you could literally carbon copy Jeff's comments on this album and just attribute them to me. I I, I agree with everything uh, Jeff said. From from the fact that yes, he was it seems like he was kind of forced. He was not forced. Might might not be the right word, but he was playing for someone else and was not playing for himself. I think on a lot of songs on this album, uh, I agree. I think Lonesome Death of, of Hattie Carroll is the is the standout track, the one that still resonates, the one that packs a punch when you get to that final verse um and for the most part um a lot of the rest well boots of spanish leather i think north country blues is, is okay that's a song about um outsourcing literally you know a mining company moving out of town from minnesota uh, perhaps his hometown um and you know cardboard filled windows and old men on benches when the when the when the company leaves but man, I mean, like, with God on our side, as Jeff talked about, man, that is seven minutes of monotony. And it, it announces its, its, its monotony with a long, drawn-out, lethargic harmonica note to start things off. Uh, it, and it just carries on from there. Uh, this is, you know, th- this is the Bob Dylan that I had in my mind when I was putting off listening to Bob Dylan for so long. You know, the kind of languid uh, 60s folk protest songs. And when I did come around to listening to it, I realized all the other stuff is great. It's this that perhaps he's, uh, at least I knew him, you know, best for early on, that I don't like at all.
2: I'm uh, I'm I'm willing to go to bat for this album. Uh, Do it. Be the hero. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I ranked the albums, I think I put it like number eighteen or something out of his like what 30, 30, I forget how many thirty four albums, uh, soon to be thirty five. I imagine, but. um yeah, I mean, taken in context of what it is, and also I think well, I'll first of all I'll start off by saying I'm biased because this might have been when I was an angsty teenager, might have been one of the albums that really hit me because you know, when you're a teenager you're listening to a lot of sort of ham-fisted political stuff. And when I was fifteen, sixteen it was, you know, Connor Oberst and then but also looking at like Rage Against the Machine mm-hmm. and you know, Pink Floyd too, which is that they, they, they deal with a lot of subtlety. So I won't include them here. But, uh, for me, it's like a study in contrast between how to write a political song as Bob Dylan or how to write a, a political song as Zach la Rocha and, and Reading against the machine, which was fun as hell when you're a teenager and you want to throw yourself against the wall and whatever. And they made great albums. But the thing about the times they are changing is that a lot of the songs that have, oh, oh, some of them are dreary, you're right, but I I, I actually would, would say Bells of Hall, Hollis Brown, I think, I love the pessimism and the darkness, it really paints a portrait of just absolute sheer, just complete loss of hope in this story. And I mean, the last line about uh, at the end, I forget the exact line, I should have pulled the lyrics up, but you know, the story being that the, Hollis Brown kills his entire family because they're, I think the farm is being taken away and they're starving. Uh, and rather than than suffer, he, he ends all their lives. It's very over the top, but it's it's just so perfectly dreary. And it's it, yeah, sure, it's social preening. But when you're 15, 16 years old, it's very, very, you know, the black and white moralism really strikes a chord for you. Not only that, but it strikes a chord for you because there are some really, really great catchy melodies here that accompany very ham-fisted politics. And, you know like you can go through the tracklist and you can think of one line that is just like or or the hook or the refrain from each song and you you just you know it it's it's instantaneous um but other than, you know for me there's some great songs that aren't necessarily political too we haven't hit them yet which is restless farewell which was his reworking of um the Clancy Brothers or an Irish traditional uh, The Parting Glass, just a beautiful sort of farewell song. that could have been better if Dylan hadn't sang it so in his nasally timbre. It might have been better later on when he was doing his self-portrait, you know, National Skyline voice. Oh,
3: every foe that ever I faced The cause was there before we came And every cause That ever I fought I fought it full Without regret or shame But the dark does die As the curtain is drawn And somebody's eyes must meet the dawn And if I see the day I'd only have to stay, so I'll bid fell
2: in the night and be gone. But uh, another Overlook song I think is One Too Many Mornings, which has a really odd chord progression for the rest of the album, but um, it's not its best here but later became one of my favorite songs in the sort of uh Rolling Thunder review repertoire in the 70s it really lent itself to be this just i don't know how to describe it but it it's it's melancholic while being rousing and um with God on our side, obviously, I mean, you know, when I was 15, I thought that was, was deep as hell, man. I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's crazy, man. That He, he really nails it. Yeah, Yeah, and you get older and you realize, yeah, the German line is really weird. It's like, what? what? Uh, I mean, uh, what? Like,
1: what are we supposed to do? Nuke the Germans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: But, like, only a pawn in their game while it's very, very, you know, again, ham-fisted. He's playing whack-a-mole with, with very obvious topics. And, you know, at the time, it was... You know, he was doing it better than any of these other folkies in Greenwich Village would ever have done. But I think the thing about only a point in their game that really, at the time when I first heard it, opened my mind was I hadn't really thought about what was the experience of the poor whites in segregation and why did they continue to vote against their own interests. And that's sort of what he was tackling there. Um, you know, the, the suggestion that that it's really the politicians who who are controlling the game and the poor whites who who participate in this segregated society and this racist society are not necessarily aware of the repercussions of what's going on because they're being manipulated by politicians who have an aim. And I thought that was interesting as a kid. I mean, now it's, you know, like a fairly mundane observation, but as a kid, I thought that was great. The
3: deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid. And the marshals and cops get the same. But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school, from the start by the rule That the laws are with him, to protect his white skin To keep up his hate, so he never thinks straight About the shape that he's in, but it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in their game.
2: But I, th- I agree with both of you that um, Patty Carroll, even, which is weird that it still holds up as such a great political and social commentary song because it's so hyper-specific about one story, right. whereas the rest of the po- political songs are about you know broader topics like war. and you know. Uh, it, it, it's
1: because the transgression of justice still retains its saliency even to today. Exactly, it, it doesn't have to be about, like, you know, uh, some privileged white kid beating a, a black lady to death. It could be about like a cop shooting a black guy. Yep, you know, like yep. Philando Castile could have been the lonesome death of mm-hmm. Philando Castile. I, that still works because you still can, you know, imagine that kind of a thing happening where somebody does something terrible and because of his privileged status, he gets off light by the system. So yeah. That's why I think that still works. And all it's not just that, it's because of the way Dylan structures that song. It is just so brilliant. It builds up to that end that
2: and devastates yeah instead of where the where the other political songs that we kind of you guys were bemoaning a little bit with I would still listen to because I enjoy them even though they're dreary but to be to to full disclosure i I, I love a good pessimistic very negative uh, outlook on on life and music sometimes <laughs> but uh, with that one you're right it's like he didn't hammer you over the head with every verse. it was very very well structured, really concise writing about a very particular story but it doesn't have to be about Hattie Carroll. I think that's a really, really great point.
0: Guys. So, Dylan,
1: Dylan compromised with the times they are changing. And I think it, it's, I don't know if you can make this argument completely, but I think generally speaking, he would never quite compromise again. Yeah. And I think the next album is where he first declared that he wasn't going to be, you know, your, your little darling folk protest singer. Uh, and he hated the, uh, title that Tom Wilson, his producer made him give the album, which is, he said it was way too on the nose, another side of Bob Dylan, uh, <laughs> which is to say, Hey, I'm not doing the same stuff I used to do. Get it. <laughs> you know, a little too on the nose, but I will only say this right now and I'll let you guys take it first. Cause I ramble too much. I think this is his most underrated album from this era. I think it's an amazing album. The only thing on it that I don't like, that I have no time for, is Ballad and Plain D, which Dylan himself agrees is yes. a song he should not have put on the record. Yes. Uh, Bad Karma, he's going after the sister of Suze Tolo, who didn't approve of their relationship. It's just an ugly song. It's the longest song on the album. It doesn't work, and it's just a big, dreary bore everything else on this album is the opposite it's sprightly and light and fun and just a pure delight I, I i really really recommend this one to people because i think it falls between the cracks
2: yeah and well you're talking just one point about the length um of the songs they're, they're all pretty short but every time i go back and listen to chimes of freedom i'm always stunned that it's seven minutes long because it feels like a little you know like a four minute uh, kind of cryptic social commentary song, that uh, a, a really great ditty for lack of a better word that Springsteen later covered in the late '80s and, and made a single out of it. Uh, but it's seven minutes long, and that's like a, a great sign that it doesn't slog on. And there's just so much. I mean, it, opening with "All I Really Want to Do," which is one of the first songs I learned on guitar, uh, with that beautiful slide on the high three strings uh, uh, to basically play the whole song. Is, is you know he almost breaks into like a Hank Williams yodel at the end of the chorus. It's it's <laughs> it's such a it's such a great performance. And obviously the song that everybody well, there's two songs. Uh, there's more than two songs here, but the two songs that I think are the most important that people would always talk about with this album is first, "It Ain't Me, Babe," because that's just like pop standard at this point, especially after Johnny Johnny and June covered it. Um, and it's just it's an indelible pop. Send-off song, but then more importantly, of course, is the the statement song "My Back Pages," which Mm -hmm. is literally more. I mean, more so than the title, it would have been a better album title, honestly, because it's it it's the the mission statement, and it's not as over the top, you know, in your face. Hi, this is the other side of Bob Dylan. uh, Is "My Back Pages," which was his renouncing the whole, you know, without renouncing necessarily, but a kiss off to people who wanted him to be just. A guy, you know, standing behind the truck in the south playing for a crowd of, of protesters, he you know still had that side of him, but he wanted to, he didn't want to be constrained by that. And he didn't want to be constrained by the, I think Maggie's Farm, we'll talk about too, was another one of those where he was basically saying, You can't, you know, you can't make me what you want to be. And this is the, I think this, for me, this is the beginning of the chameleon Bob Dylan. This is the beginning of him taking on the form of whatever the hell he wants and you know screw you if you don't like it because you know whatever this is my career
3: yes my guard stood hard when abstract threats too noble to neglect deceived me into thinking i had something to protect good and bad I define these terms quite clear, no doubt, somehow. Ah, but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now.
2: I think it was really appropriately played. Uh, when he was I was it when he was inducted into Holf. No, it was the end of the tribute concert in ninety two at the Garden where everybody Right, yes. Everybody and their mother was in that performance and it was just like (laughs) this it's basically because if he this song is, you know, pre him going electric technically. Uh but if this song this song's mission statement is kicks off that entire legacy that led to, I mean, like who, uh, who else was on stage with them? Tom Petty, George Harrison, yep. all these guys. Roger
1: McGuinn. Who? Roger ho- McGuinn. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, right. And, and
1: by the way, I'll point out that as much as I love Dylan's version of My Back Pages, I, I and we did this on our show, on our covers episode. I consider the Birds' version of My Back Pages to be superior. Yeah. They, they 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 turned it from a three four kind of like a kind of a folk waltz into just one of the most sparkling pop songs of, of the entire psychedelic era. Yeah. You know, yeah. just yep. Beautiful, beautiful song. Version, best best Dylan cover. I mean, one of the two or three best Dylan covers that I've ever been
2: done, in my opinion. Always the birds, obviously. <laughs> well, Fairport <laughs> Convention. Uh, you know, yeah. don't forget Fairport. But anyway, sure. Scott?
0: Yeah, I mean, just to start with my, my back pages, you know, uh, Andrew took a lot of this. But yeah, it, it's both a, a kiss off and I think it's... it's um, it's him saying he's open to new things, right? Not just musically, but also um, uh, politically too. It's not that you have to kind of be uh, down the line and, and completely uh, aligned with the protest movement. L- lies that life is black and white. Spoke from my skull. I dreamed. Um, you know, the real world is not all that simple. Uh, I think my back pages kicks that off, and it, and it would continue too. It's fantastic. I mean, good
1: and bad. I define these terms yeah. quite clear, no doubt. Somehow, but I was so much older then. It's, it's a
2: direct response to. The black and white moralism of the previous yeah. album really yep yeah.
0: and, and you know the first song of the album all i really want to do uh is almost a, a stark um contrast to everything lyrically on the last album if you take it you know hmm. literally all i really want to do is be friends with you i, I think you know i don't want to crucify you i mean that was the whole last album right I, we're, we're, i'm going to call you out i'm going to uh play a lot of what uh, uh dylan called finger pointing songs all I really want to do is a falsetto laughter lighthearted some fun uh, internal rhyming structure and wordplay um, lyrically it's completely the opposite of that last album and it kicks things off um, uh, to Ramona uh, is one of these great early love songs passion and intensity and this is you know as I look at my notes here this is when and I start gravity brevity to- brevity yes. it's yeah.
1: just a very simple song <laughs> quick done out doesn't doesn't insist upon itself <laughs>
4: in any way. Yeah.
0: Th- this is when I really start to begin to write down in my notes these these just gorgeous lyrics and, and couplets from these songs. You know, to Ramona, uh, everything passes, everything changes, just do what you think you should do. Someday, maybe, who knows, baby, I'll come and be crying to you is great stuff and it's a great vocal uh, performance too uh, on, on too remote
3: everything passes everything changes just do what you think you should do And someday maybe who knows baby I'll come and be crying to
4: you.
0: Uh, i don't believe you uh, again a free kind of freewheeling, to to steal a Dylan term, but uh you know laughing up tempo uh song uh confusion in relationships the you know the, the woman goes from from being excited to being nonchalant to, i don't believe he's a, a great a, a great song too. Uh, I'm not a giant fan of "I Shall Be Free." You know, not everything rises to a uh, a gold star, five star kind of kind of level. But you know, the the uh, uh, free wheeling took uh, took a year. This was recorded in six hours, basically, 14 songs in six hours. I think I think my back pages was the last one around 1 a.m. Uh, And of those 14, 11 on the uh, on the album, this is when he begins to um, to play for himself, I think. And and that really shoots forward in in the next album. But 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 it it starts here.
2: That's also uh, when I was a kid, when I first started drinking alcohol, uh, Beaujolais. (laughs) I remember reading that yes. he recorded yes. his album in it one night and drank two bottles of Beaujolais and I was like, oh, I gotta try that, and that has been my wine since I was probably you know, <laughs> like 18 or whatever, because of that album.
4: <laughs> yeah. Here's
1: the thing about another set of Bob Dylan, and I actually want to, you know, kind of make a point going a little retrospectively about the times they are changing. The best songs in my opinion, most of the best songs on the times they are changing were left off the album. If you're familiar with Dylan's outtakes, there's so many wonderful tracks. There's Seven Curses. There's Percy's Song, which Fairport Convention would just do a magnificent cover of. And then there's, I think, one of his truly iconic tunes. And the only reason I'm not going to make it, it's not going to make it to my top five is because he didn't release it. You, you can't find it anywhere except Biograph, which is a, a obscure boxed set of his from the 80s called Lay Down Your Weary Tune. Mm-hmm. And, and sing the, and rest your head neath the strength of strings, no voice can hope to hum. It's a, it's a mystical song, and there's Dylan trying to tune himself into sort of a, a a less specific and and more oceanic mystical folk vibe that he carried on. I think truly beautifully on another side with "Chimes of Freedom," which is a song that we haven't talked about yet. Done. Great version of it was done by the Birds on their first album, um, but the the Dylan version is really the definitive one. And, and you hear these lines, and, and you 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 would see them coming back. He would come back to the style on Mr. Tambourine Man. He would come back to it on Desolation Row. You'd come back to it on Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. But you, know, as majestic bells of bolts struck shadows and the sounds, seeming to be the chimes of freedom flashing. Uh, freeness in the wordplay, freeness in the verse uh, that seemed to be untethered from anything other than perhaps... Dylan Thomas, or you know the poets of you know 19th century uh, romantic uh, British poetry, uh, nothing to do with protest, even though it's called the Chimes of Freedom, and you know you know he talks about you know and in every unlucky soul misplaced inside a jail, uh, this is a song that is about far more than mere political concerns. This is a song about uh, spiritual and mystical concerns.
3: Sorry-eyed and laughing. As I recall when we were caught Trapped by no track of hours For they hang suspended As we listened one last time And we watched with one last look Spellbound and swallowed Till the tolling ended Tolling for the aching whose wounds cannot be nursed for the countless confused accused misused strung out ones and worse and for every hung up person in the whole wide universe and we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing
1: That to me was you know the pointer forward for Dylan. But the other pointer forward was the humor. The humor that you heard on songs on uh, the Freewheel and Bob, yeah. Bob Dylan. Yep. Songs like you know, I shall be free, you know, as I said, you know, make love to Elizabeth Taylor. It comes back with uh, I, I particular, I love. I don't believe you. Uh, I don't believe you is probably going to make my top five songs, and it isn't just in this version, which is a kind of a sprightly acoustic version. But then, when Dylan went on tour with the band in 1966, he, he had a little shtick that he had down for every show. He blow a little bit into his harmonica. You do little do do do. He says the song is called I don't believe you. It used to go like that, and now it goes like this. And then he just kicks into this absolutely ass-kicking version of the song, rocked up with you know Robbie Robertson and Rick Danko and Richard Manuel and Garth Hudson in the background, just kicking it into the top gear. Um, the humor in that turned into a true rock song uh, is, is something that Dylan reclaimed on this album. <laughs> It also with songs like Black Girl Blues, Spanish Harlem Incident, and all I really want to do. I, I actually think it's interesting. Nobody's pointed out that the rhyming scheme, and all I really want to do is kind of like a big middle finger. To all of those yeah. self-serious, <laughs> like chin-stroking, you know, uh, goateed uh, folk purists, you know, who are sitting around Greenwich Village waiting for the next big topical Dylan statement, he's just like, all I really want to do is, baby, be friends with you, I'm not looking to fight with you, all these goofy rhymes and, you know, and, and really kind of silly, insouciant lyrics, this to me, was his Declaration of Independence, and that's why this album leads just so naturally into bringing it all back home. Which I said, uh, you know, earlier was the album that opened my mind in the way that, like a Rolling Stone, opened so many other people's minds. Uh, I am still in awe of this record, and it's actually ironic that I think, at the end of the day, I'm not going to cite it as one of my two, you know, key albums from this period believe me people that doesn't mean that i don't love it dylan is just that great of an artist uh this record is amazing this is famous as the album where dylan first went electric and of course the the kickoff track is subterranean homesick blues which you know is there any dylan song other than like a rolling stone that's more famous and those opening lines that johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine i'm on a pavement thinking about the government Insert four thousand, you know, tumbling rhyme schemes after that. That's that's Dylan Electric. This, believe it or not, scandalized people. It's hard to understand <laughs> how kind of what we think of now as sort of kind of a uh, a mild electric backing. This isn't like real hard. This isn't uh, Black Sabbath. Behind Bob Dylan, this is you know Mike Bloomfield. This is like a nice kind of like blues-rocky kind of a band, not very very uh, tough and hard. But the idea of Dylan fully embracing electric instruments, which he only does on the first half right. of bringing it all back home, was a revelation, a scandal. Uh, this is the moment that he started getting booed, and of course, nobody ever noticed that the second half of it is also all acoustic music. And I think if you subtract "Gates of Eden," which I think is an acoustic song that doesn't work, it's also you know some of the most famous and profound work of his career. Again, I'm going to let you guys take this first. I could say something positive about every single track on this record aside from like outlaw blues and on the road again which are just kind of fun bluesy songs that have clever lyrics but don't really amount to much but everything else here is a major statement and i said capital m capital s major statement (laughs) i mean these these songs you i'm just like sometimes i like try to compile greatest hits for people who don't know dylan and i get to bring it all back home and it all falls apart because I'm like, oh, F, what do I do? I have like, you know, with, there are uh, 11 songs on this record and I want to include seven out of the 11. How yeah. am I going to do this?
2: Yeah. And uh, one of the, I, I think Subterranean Homestead Blues is like such a, a rock critics staple when they're discussing Dylan because the, the cliche among rock critics is that it's the first rap song in a lot of ways. Uh, just the meter and and the the sheer yeah, rhythm. it's
1: too much monkey business in in Dylan for. I mean, it's not the first rap song. I I
4: disagree. With that.
2: I, I, whenever people say that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, there's a lot of other songs that you can probably credit in the '60s that were not Bob Dylan. That would be the first rap song. But like the other thing about this album that's really just makes it closer to perfect than the previous albums is uh, the love song. I mean, she belongs to me. Love minus zero. The way he described love in those songs using completely non-cliched terms. And that that's key for Dylan, again, is like he just, he unlocked, and I, I would say this is sort of the predecessor, that like his ability, this is when he was first forming the ability to describe the mundane details of love or like using almost anecdotal stories to convey a feeling of love or what it's like to be in love. That uh, to me, you can draw a direct lineage to Blood on the Tracks later, where it's just this ability to, to really use brilliant wordplay and 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 unconventional lexicon and and not stick to the script of how to write a love song um that really made that special and like even the sweet song like mr tambourine man which is just indelible everybody thinks of mr tambourine man i mean people probably more so think about it as a a bird song um but it's just you know that is that is i guess it's a lullaby in a lot of ways too it's just beautiful but i think my two favorite on this album actually are the last two it's all right mom only bleeding and it's all over now baby blue which i think which are actually both acoustic as you mentioned just especially it's all right now just the sheer seven and a half minutes of of completely dylan ass dylan-esque bleakness but also it's political but it's not um well it's not ham-fisted obviously and it's but I feel
1: like I feel like it's societal it's, not yeah political. exactly it's you social yeah. it's
2: more social commentary I guess you could say but just from the opening lines just darkness at the break of noon shadows even the silver spoon like you know that line it's like burned into your skull the first time you hear it from then on because it's just so there's just something about his delivery it, it's like it's a muted hiss in a lot of ways and then of course it I mean this performed in the 66 sets uh that now you you can get the entire box set of every single performance from that tour it's just it's one of the highlights of the set and done acoustic and just sitting there for seven and a half minutes by himself playing this just I I remember feeling like just complete awe when I especially when I tried to learn it on guitar and learn how to sing in his his idiosyncratic way and it's just impossible because that's what makes this so special it's just like there's no there is no copycatting this there is no trying to replicate this songwriting because it's just so uniquely Bob Dylan this is really when he became I mean this is obviously leading into the next album but I won't intro that obviously but you know, scott still has to talk but uh, it's funny
4: because you just
1: like me like i tried to play it too and like i i, I can do the guitar line but you know, I, I try to sing that song and i just i just sound like a clown like you, yeah you know you, i'm not i'm not bob <laughs> like,
2: i can't do that. this isn't a bob ballad this is this is just bob dylan song like there's no there's no covering this there's no there's it, it is just sheerly it, it, it is like to me one of the uh, i maybe it should be in my five
3: my eyes collide head on with stuffed graveyards false goals, I scuff at pettiness which plays so rough, walk upside down inside handcuffs kick my legs to crash it off, say okay I've had enough, what else can you show me and if my thought dreams could be seen they'd probably put my head in a guillotine but it's alright ma it's life and life
2: only Actually, now that I mentioned one of my five songs I think I was going to pick is actually a B-side to the previous album. Um, but... there's a a bunch on this one too Oh, actually yes I wanted to say for this album that there are some of the great b-sides too some of the great outtakes and that's what's staggering about it is that they they didn't make it and imagine if like Farewell Angelina or I'll keep it with mine oh
1: my god I'll keep it with mine yeah (laughs) and by the way that's the thing like if you have the complete they released the complete box the complete recordings every single studio session that Dylan recorded from the bringing it all back home era to blonde on blonde has now been officially released on a box a a bootleg series called the cutting edge the built the bringing it all back home sessions are actually probably the most easy to listen to because uh, they're the shortest but the amazing thing about i'll keep it with mine is like he does multiple believe it or not like outlaw blues and on the road again he did like 400 takes stuff i'll keep it with mine just one take he just walks in sits down at the piano plays it it's the perfect song (laughs) it's the perfect song and he never released it he He gave it to me he gave it yeah to Nico and the Fairport convention and they did great versions of it and Judy it. Collins <laughs>
4: yeah. <It's
1: just> like... <laughs> like how do you have a gem like that and you just leave it in the vaults Bob I don't
3: understand yeah. you will search me but how long be you search for what is not lost everybody will help you some people are very
0: Mine. I want to point out a couple of things uh, as we enter this album. One is that, you know, we met, the first album didn't sell. By this point, he's selling, right? Bringing It All Back Home went to number six on the charts. It was number one in the UK. I think Subterranean Homesick Blues was a top 40 hit. So, you know, he, he's popular. The songs are popular. The album is selling. By this point, too, um, he's met the Beatles. Dylan's met the Beatles. It was, I think, in August 64. And, and Bringing It All Back Home was March of 65. And so, you have a little bit of the Beatles kind of angling toward Dylan in some of their social commentary, and I think Dylan obviously angling toward the Beatles in some of the, um, you know, good old fashioned rock and roll um, and bringing the electric into the mix, obviously. And one more Beatles uh, analogy is, you know, we just did our Beatles uh, um, edition, and I had mentioned, you know, Rubber Soul for the Beatles is one that. I think other people like more than I do. I like it. I like it. I like it. But other people like it more. And I, I, I think for me, bringing it all back home is that way, too. I like it an awful lot. I think others like it more than I do. And I, I see it as just this stepping stone to get to what would be Highway 61. He, he's, he's just figuring things out. He's just starting to mess with the way that things are kind of put together. And, and that next step is the really exciting one to me that said there's great stuff here of course um, you know Andrew mentioned the last two songs of the album It's Alright Ma and It's All Over Now Baby Blue those are both just knockout tracks uh, especially for me It's All Over Now Baby Blue just a, a, a goodbye to everything uh, a goodbye to Uh, the innocence uh, of maybe the earlier part of the decade a goodbye to any number of women that may have been in bob dylan's uh you know atmosphere uh goodbye to the to the the protest uh movement that 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 stark opening you know you must leave now take what you need uh you think will last better grab it fast uh and then later on leave your stepping stones behind something calls for you forget the dead you've left they will not follow you uh, just stark, amazing, beautiful Dylan, you know, trademark Dylan imagery throughout. It's all over now, Baby Blue, which is a great song.
3: Leave your stepping stones behind There's something that calls for you Forget the dead you've left They will not follow you The vagabond who's rapping at your door is standing in the clothes that you once wore. Strike another match, go, start anew. And it's all over now, baby blue.
0: Again, agreeing with Jeff, and in, 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 uh, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man's not my favorite song. I thought I would, might be the only person not to, to kind of praise it here. I mean, it's 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 good. It's just. It's not my favorite track uh, on the album, and not one of my favorite Dylan songs from that first half. Um, she belongs to him. I think that's a great vocal uh, uh, performance, and that that high guitar tone that sort of follows its way through the song is is great. And uh, and Maggie's Farm, which Andrew had mentioned, uh, you know, my back pages sort of leading to to, to Maggie's Farm, and s- both having kind of similar themes. Um, got a head full of ideas, driving me insane. Try my best to. Be just who I am, but everyone wants uh, you to be just like them. Um, it's coming through. Uh, Dylan's gonna start playing for uh, himself, which we would see. As, he's not gonna. He's not gonna sing while he's slaves. Yeah, because he'll just get bored. Um, you know, there's a few things that I don't think are quite there. Outlaw Blues and On the Road Again are, are decent tracks, but. I think both those are kind of templates for things that would just burst out of the speakers on Highway 61. They're fine. Uh, they'd, be better, they'd be better very, very soon. And I will underline again, all this is happening when Bob Dylan is still just 23 years old. It's crazy to think about that.
1: I'll tell you why I like bringing it all back home more than Highway 61 revisited. And this isn't an opinion that I can necessarily rationally defend. Okay. I get Andrew. I heard that. Wow. I don't know (laughs) if I can rationally defend it, but I'm telling you on an emotional level, Highway 61 was the album that we had in our household forever. There are songs on my favorite songs on Highway 61 are are, other than Desolation Row, obviously, and like Rolling Stone are some of the less famous songs like Queen Jane, approximately. We'll talk about that later. Um, But on bringing it all back home, what I discovered is a man who can write a truly considered lyric that is powerful, focused, and absolutely devastating in a way that would get looser and looser as he got more and more into what would kind of culminate in the Blonde on Blonde phase. I, I think of "It's All Over Now, Baby Blue," which has already been discovered d- discussed by both of us, both by Andrew and both by Scott. Uh, that final verse, I, I, I just I asked myself has Has anybody wrote a a better you know bitter and and, and sad valediction, then leave your stepping stones behind. Something calls for you. Forget the dead you've left. They will not follow you. And then the vagabond who's rapping at your door is stranding in the clothes that you once wore, which by the way, prefigures that line in Like a Rolling Stone where he talks about, you know, you used to be so amused at Napoleon rags that in the language that he used. But go to him now. He calls you. It's the same kind of an image. If you know the you know, the homeless person who uh, you may have dismissed has wisdom that you may not have personally appreciated, but now may perhaps speak to you. And that final line: strike another match, go start anew, because it's all over now, baby blue. That's just nobody else wrote that. Nobody else could write music and lyrics with that kind of a focus. That was Singular. That was Dylan. That was him and him alone. No one touched that. No one could ever touch that. But uh, the one on this album that uh, is going to make it into my top five, and it's a song that I actually only came to later in life, even though I had heard it many times in high school and, and onward. But when I when I returned to bringing it all back home, I heard it again. Maybe you know once I had understood what love was like, and 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 you know, getting to know the mystery of, of a woman, and you know all of the beauty and you know the the sort of complexities. Uh, it's love minus zero, no limit. When I hear Bob fire up that guitar. And then sing, my love. She speaks like silence, without ideals or violence. She doesn't have to say she's faithful, yet she's true, like ice, like fire. I uh, think of that as one of the greatest love songs that has ever been written by anyone, even though it gets discursive. You know, what's that final verse where he talks about like the bridge at midnight trembling and the country doctor rambling or bankers' and nieces and things like that? It doesn't matter. Those opening verses and the way he sings about a woman whose whose mystique, whose power, whose uh, whose intoxicating ability to, to hold you in her grasp is so strong is something that again you have to have a level of ambition that is truly audacious to even try to get to that level and you have to have a, a skill level <laughs> to bring it off and nobody combined those two except
3: Dylan love, she speaks like silence without ideals of violence she doesn't have to say she's faithful yet she's true like ice like fire People carry roses And make promises by the hours My love, she laughs like the flowers Valentines can't buy her In the dime stores and bus stations People talk of situations Read books, repeat quotations Draw conclusions on the wall. Some speak of the future. My love, she speaks softly. She knows there's no success like failure. And that failure's no success at all.
1: Uh, so I, I think of songs like It's All Over Now and Love Minus Zero. And I am just in awe of the focus that he brought to bringing it all back home. And then I think of joke songs like Bob Dylan's Hundred Fifteenth Dream." That's the funniest damn thing Bob Dylan would ever write. Every <laughs> single couplet of that song, I actually wanted to pretend that I had written when I was in high school. You know, starting with "I was riding on the Mayflower when I thought I spied some land." There's a joke, a joke, a joke, a joke. It's like a Shaggy dog story where he, you know, he, you know, he's he's riding on his boat he gets you know shipwrecked and he goes door to door looking for help and there's that great line when he goes to the door and he asks someone to help him and the guy says hell no and he says you know they refuse jesus too and the guy says you know you're not him <laughs> It's is uh-huh. great it's just funny it's a self-aware level of humor that he would lose fairly soon uh, i think I would argue to his detriment, but I think maybe you can say that you just can't keep that kind of a flame burning for too long, especially when you're burning the candle at both ends, which I think brings us to Highway 61 Revisited. I think in particular, people are going to want to, of course, talk about the opening song on this album. I'll let other people talk about that one. I think the one song I want to talk about in this album is the last song on this album, which is Desolation Row, which is Dylan at the, I think, the end of his rope in a way. Uh, written in in as dark a place as he would ever get, uh, even though it's as beautiful a song as he would ever write. What does it open with? They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. Uh, And then it goes into this very free associational series of images uh, that goes from everything from Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot arguing on the deck of the Titanic as they trade deck chairs on a boat that's going down. Ophelia, who's beneath the window, and we, we, know, we know what Ophelia's fate was in Hamlet. She committed suicide driven insane by Hamlet. You know Einstein disguised as Robin Hood. All of these images that become… To some people, nonsensical, but to me, they all make a perfect amount of sense when you understand that this is a song sung by a person who has embraced ennui and who has embraced uh, a a certain level of indifference and complete detachment from society, from life, from the entire rat race, and no longer sees a solution. To me, this is an anti-protest song. This is a song that, that sadly says that there are no solutions to the the endless cycle of life, death, rebirth, all the pain, all the sadness in our lives that we have to deal with societally, culturally, you know, historical cycles. This has all happened before. This will all happen again. That's Desolation Row. That's a pretty heavy tune. It would be a lot heavier if it weren't for the most beautiful guitar, I think, that has been played on a folk song in rock history by Charlie McCoy who's an old Nashville hand who we play on Blonde on Blonde and he fills this song with the most beautiful filigrees in every every passing verse and in, in, in every uh, bridge between the verses and this is I will just say uh, when I first heard this song I, I put on my brother's copy of the CD I'd seen it on the back of albums that we had, on the back of a CD forever, and I just assumed it would be a dreary song, kind of like something off the times there changing that I wouldn't want to listen to, that I'd hate. Because, ah, Desolation Row, nine minutes, God, it must be awful. And then it started playing, and then I found myself actually thinking, please, God, do not let this end. Do not let this end. Please let this continue onward. And it did. And it did. It's one of the longest songs in Dylan's career, and it's the one that earns its length the most.
3: The Titanic sails at dawn. Everybody is shouting, Which side are you on? And Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot fighting in the captain's tower while Calypso singers laugh at them and fishermen hold flowers between the windows of the sea where lovely mermaids flow and nobody has to think too much about desolation road
2: And what's astonishing about this album? I this is one of my two album picks. I mean, this might for a long time this was my favorite Dylan album, uh, close competitor. With, and t- you know, I got I had a long term girlfriend, and we got married, and now I think Blood on the Tracks is a little uh, it speaks to me on a different level too. But uh, what's astonishing about this album is um, I forget which Dylan biographer it was, but there's so many of them, obviously. But one uh, described it as like one of the most brilliant pop albums ever made, and that's so crazy to me because it really is. It's, it's a brilliant pop. Like the, 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 songwriting is, is a lot of the songs are long, but like concise, it instantly hooks you, but it's a post-apocalyptic. It's searing. It's, it's misanthropic. It's, it's, it's dreary. I mean, the imagery throughout the album is just, it, it, it's like taking really, really good rock and roll music and putting, Sometimes very cryptic and very, as you were saying, you know, the ennui, like really, juxta- it's a, it's just a brilliant juxtaposition. And it's from- harsh.
1: It's not only harsh. harsh in its lyrics. It's harsh in the way the instrumentation is. This is not easy. This is not soft kind of rock and roll like yeah. I'm bringing mm-hmm. an owl back home. This is coruscating It's it, even Blonde on Blonde has a much softer tinge yes, to yes, it. it yeah. This is just tough
2: stuff. It's searing. It's it's and he's searing and in, in the instrumentation and like a couple of the the, the, the I wanted to talk about some specific songs, but obviously, "Like a Rolling Stone" to me, the thing about "Like a Rolling Stone" is that song. While brilliant and and like I said, it's you know sort of kickstarted me in a lot of ways. I think, at least in my you know retrospective view, how I got into Dylan. But um, Al Cooper made that song. I mean, he, he impro- the, the original take of the song had, I right. guess, the, the organ line was much more plodding, and then he just improvised in the studio, and they came up with arguably, to me, arguably the greatest the greatest organ line in all of pop and rock music history. Uh it's just iconic. And I think that's the
1: organ line that somebody who had just learned the instrument that day could play. That's right. Had just learned the instrument that day. Yeah.
2: It's insane. It's insane. Uh like the the history of this album. I, I almost each song you can write a book about each of them. But uh for me, I think you know you already talked about Desolation Row. I was I was considering putting that in my five my five songs from this period either Desolation Row or um oddly enough highway sixty one revisited the, the the title track um just because well first of all i mean having the first time I saw Bob Dylan live was was on the never ending tour which i you know, at my age obviously that was the only time I would have seen him the first time but uh, to this day i 've seen him fifteen times now and every time almost every time he 's played highway sixty one and you know, a lot of people have problems with modern-day Bob Dylan live shows. I, I think he's still fantastic, and the band is incredibly tight. But when they launch into the climax of the song and the drums kick in live, it is unbelievable. And it, it reminds me of when the first time I heard this song. It, it to me, it almost felt like I was listening to a proto-punk song, even though it doesn't have a punk tempo. But there's just something about how, just straight up, like kick your ass rock and roll road song. <laughs> but the lyrics, especially, are just like. He borrows from the Bible. The first verse is retelling the story of Abraham and Isaac and and the conversation between God. It's just between God and talking about where do you want this killing done? God said out on Highway 61. It's, you know, it, it's, te- it's telling all these very bleak, dark stories. Mac the Finger and Louis the King. Uh, I'm to remember the. I think my favorite part of the song, though, is because this is obviously social commentary. A lot of this album is just social commentary, buried, sure. but like with beat poetry and very Ging- Ginsburgian sort of. It's lyricism, but when he's talking about uh, sort of warmongering politicians I guess, and he's saying they're trying to create the next world war and he talks about a promoter you know, sort of referencing the concert uh, business, a promoter who nearly fell off the floor, said I never engaged in this kind of thing before, but yes, I think it could be very easily, easily done. done, we'll just put some bleachers out in the sun and have it on Highway 61, and for whatever reason, that just floored me when I heard that, because it's it's like, it is cutting to the core of something that happened, I think more so 30 or 40 years later where like news has become entertainment and yes. it blurs the line between like you know we're watching bombings in real time now and it, it just he he saw that like the you know, postcards of the hanging too is another line that sort of gets at that
3: oh god Said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but uh, next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where you want this killing done? God said, on Highway 61.
1: speaking about the art of of dialect. Uh, I, I have to say, when we did our Ryan Adams episode, Scott made a great observation about uh, an Adams song off of Jacksonville City Nights. I, I can't remember the exact one right now, where he said there was something about the way that that, that Adams just sang a, a line, you know, that sounded so conversational, that sort of captured spoken yeah. dialect.
0: Oh no. uh, yeah, Do you I know what you're one talking one, about. Scott? I gotta think about it. But I know I know what you're talking about, yep. yeah. Yeah. And, and and
1: and on Highway Sixty One, the title track, did that opening uh verse is a perfect example of that. You know, no, no. God said to Abraham, "Kill me a son." right? Yeah. not just you know, kill. He said, "Kill me a son." Abe said, "Man, you must be putting me on." God <laughs> said, "No." Abe said, "What?" God said, "You can do what you want, Abe, but uh, you know, next time you see me coming, you better run." And Abe said, "Where you want this killing done?" That is such perfect, you know, yeah. like hip street slang reduced to rhyming meter. Mm-hmm. in a way that seems completely unforced and it becomes just sort of the thing that I I've, I can now recite that from memory a lot of times we go back and we do these shows I, I'm, I'm notoriously bad at getting lyrics right when I do the show I got that one right <laughs> I've, I've heard that since I was like 14 years old I, I don't ever have to hear it again because it's just burned into my banks the way he just nails the meter of that—that that it sounds like a conversation. Uh, that uh, this is this is this is your 60s beatnik god, obviously, as opposed to uh, you know your Old Testament god. Same basic message, but I'm just so impressed with how he delivers a really kind of fearsome message, but does it in a way that makes you laugh. And only then do you realize that there's just something very dark, dark, dark about what he's saying underneath that that humor.
2: Yeah. And uh, the the only other song I want—I mean, I could talk about every single song and make we could—I mean, we could probably write collectively write books on each of the songs. But uh, "Ballad of a Thin Man," which similarly is a dressing down of of elites, and I guess I mean, I guess he was kind of dressing down. The 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 story goes that he was dressing down a particular Mister Jones was a uh, uh, a critic or a rock writer that he was basically you know telling to piss off, but. Beyond, like obviously, the lyrical content and just being this very sardonic song, I think what's so great about it is just he was really figuring out as an arranger and also with the help of Al Cooper of how to really hammer home what how this song was just sneering, dressing down of somebody else with this like almost like a it's like terrifying the organ part by Al Cooper and over Dylan's sort of you know minor chord uh, piano playing, and it's for me it's like. He was learning to paint not just uh, beautiful poetry and and scathing poetry. He was learning to paint with like the guitar and with the piano and and just like really learning. To, like for me, this is like a studio. Well, I guess that's to the credit of Bob Johnson, the producer. But like, he was really learning to paint with everything, not just his words and his his Dylan voice. It was just like the stories were told because of how sneering the music was and how how incredible the instrumentation was. And I think Ballad of a Thin Man really, really hammers that. Hot Take, I really dislike Ballad of a Thin Man. Oh, no,
1: no. I, it's maybe, maybe my least favorite song on the entire album. Even, even I like it even less than From a Buick 6, which most people identify as the most anonymous song on the record. Yeah. There's something about the karma of that song I never enjoyed. It just seems like it's very mean. nasty it's, and sneering yeah. and mean and it i find it ponderous I, I think the thing when i listen to it i focus on the most is al cooper's organ which is again great but beyond that no i don't like it and i think that may be one of the reasons why i prefer bringing it all back home a little bit over highway 61 but of course i know i'm like like in the vast ultra minority <laughs>
3: Cause something is happening and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones?
0: If so,
2: you yeah. if, if you well, uh, well, I, 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 before if you if you hate Ballad of then Thin Man, well not hate, but if you dislike it, I, I, then I guess. There's also an outtake from this album that you probably also dislike too because it's so sneering and mean and just like outright just hostile, which is uh, positively fourth. Positively okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know what? I like that. that one a little bit more because my dad always loved it and he played it for me. And he told me, I, I, I'm pretty sure, Jeff, that the song is about Phil Oaks and then he explained <laughs> who Phil Oaks
0: was. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, But yeah, there's that, 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 that great, you, know, you got a lot of nerve to say you are my friend. Yeah, that's, the, it was released as a single. From,
4: yeah, from these it's sessions. all
2: over rock radio now. I, I, whenever I occasionally, when I'm driving, I have a Sirius XM whenever I go to, like, you know. Deep tracks, or not even deep tracks, classic vinyl, I think the station is. Yep. The Dylan song they play the most is Positively 4th Street. It's so inexplicable. That <laughs> That's strange. Yeah. I mean,
1: Positively 4th Street is also not a favorite of mine. I actually prefer the songs that were inspired by Positively 4th Street more than the song itself. 19th Nervous Breakdown by the Rolling Stones yeah. clearly was inspired by Positively 4th Street in a lot of different ways. Much better song. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. You, know, you, you kind of keyed into. You know, the the places where I depart with Dylan on his tone, although ironically, Idiot Win is probably one of my favorite. <laughs> that's, favorite
2: a that's a different of kind time. of sneering though. Yeah.
0: Different kind of anger. Okay. But anyways, Scott, what were your thoughts? I uh there's a quote from Dylan around this time. Very tiring having other people tell you how much they dig you if you yourself don't dig you. Yeah. Clearly, Dylan is digging himself on Highway Sixty One. I, I think it shows in every possible way. I I think this is a nearly flawless album. Uh, Nine songs, 51 minutes. There is confidence and attitude all over these songs. Uh, Even that sort of laconic uh, laid-back pose on the cover fits just perfectly. Bob Johnston's production is outstanding. I love his production on uh, on, uh, Highway 61 Revisited. And I have to talk even more about Like a Rolling Stone because... You, you occasionally get the impossible questions to Angela, like, right, what's the best rock and roll song of all time? How do you, how do you pick, right? But if someone makes me, I generally say either Gimme Shelter from the Stones or Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, like a Rolling Stone is just a perfect, perfect rock song. If you listen to it, every time I hear something new and different, and Johnston's production allows every single instrument being played to be heard in its perfection. Al Cooper's organ, those piano fills are insane. Uh, Mike Bloomfield's electric licks, uh, that ba- the bass being plucked, especially in that first verse. Uh, the unbelievable momentum that song has from verse to chorus, that rush right up into the chorus. The DNA of hundreds of bands, and not just, you know you know bands that play at your your local pub hundreds of successful rock and roll bands and country bands and alt country bands it's all in this song it's all in like a rolling stone it is absolutely one of the best rock and roll songs of all time and you slam right into into tombstone blues Uh, tombstone blues feels to me like you're getting in the car with dylan and the band and you close the door and it's like all right let's go and they take you on a ride it's a fantastic ride uh tombstone blues with these long passages and and surreal images and bloomfield's guitar is just smoking especially between And that
1: cost of humor too yes there's there's humor but there's anger you know it's talking just, about Gypsy Davey with his blowtorch who he wants to win friends and influence his <laughs> uncle, which is again a parody of the whole Dale Carnegie how to win friends and influence people thing yeah. that, you know, now we understand but back then people probably didn't twig onto, but there's rage in that song too, yep. even though it's so
0: funny. Uh, I love Highway 61 uh, as as Andrew pointed out uh, I am I'm contra uh, Jeff, I think Ballad of a Thin Man is one of the best songs on the album that you mentioned uh, Cooper's woozy kind of organ uh, lurking in the background of that song. And I I, I I like kind of the bitterness in this song, actually. And the, those circus uh, uh, imagery, the, the geek, the midget, the sword swallower, uh, the, way, the, the way an outsider looks at something that you are intimately familiar with. I really like the lyrics. Um, the one song nobody's mentioned that I've always loved, 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 and it's uh, it's Queen Jane approximately. And I don't know if you guys do this. Uh, I have, It's one of my uh, top five. Mm. Uh, I have a, a list in my head of songs that I would use if I were ever tasked with uh, scoring a movie, putting together a soundtrack for a film. I would find a way to use Queen Jane approximately somewhere in that film that I'm scoring. I, 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 I can see the f- I can see the scene, you know, playing out in front of me. I love Queen Jane uh, approximately this uh, the, the juxtaposition of that brutalness to that to that tenderness of you know. Come See, Won't You Come See Me, Queen Jane, harmonica solo. Uh, Queen Jane approximately has always been one of my favorite songs on Highway 61 and really one of my uh, just Dylan favorite songs too. It's fantastic. Now all
3: the clowns that you have commissioned
0: I think there's a real... Uh, Jeff mentioned some of UX 6. It might be near the bottom of the pile, but there's not a real misstep on this album. It's classic from start to finish. It's my favorite Dylan album.
1: Well, I mean, is it your favorite Dylan album, or is the next Dylan album everyone's favorite Dylan yeah, it's album? It's close. <laughs> because here's what happens. Okay, so, yeah. By the way, just let's point out something. In the year, calendar year of 1965, Bob Dylan put out Bringing It All Back Home in Highway 61. He put those two albums out in the same year in the same year nobody's ever gonna do that again there have been artists who have released two albums in the same year there have been artists who released three albums in the same year hey Ryan Adams right but no one is ever going to top the sheer amazing athletic genius of putting two of the greatest albums in the history of rock music out in within a span of like what they, six months or something like that
4: yep. um yep.
1: Grateful oh, uh, Dead, but <laughs> ah no, I mean American is, Beauty and Working uh, Man's Dead. You you and I are both huge Deadheads, but no, as good as those albums are, they they got nothing on these. <laughs> it's, uh, it's probably true, yeah. They got nothing on these. All right. Um, and what happens next is that Dylan, uh, you know, uh, Scott, you mentioned uh, Bob Johnston. Johnston didn't produce like a Rolling Stone. Tom Wilson, who had been his mm-hmm. producer from uh, the times they are a change in onward, I believe, produced. Uh, the Like a Rolling Stone. And that was the last song he produced with Dylan. Uh, he, they had a falling out. Nobody knows exactly what it was that caused it. Johnston came on to do the rest of Highway 61 Revisited. And then he recommended to Bob, hey, you know what you should do? Why not go to Nashville uh, and record with all these studio pros? And so what happened is that Dylan went to Nashville. And, well, he did some studio sessions in New York didn't really amount to much. He was working with this band that wouldn't amount to really anything at all, didn't have much of a reputation, you know, didn't seem to have much of a future. And then he went to Nashville, and he recorded what he ended up calling thin white mercury music, which is what he described as the sound that played in his head, the closest that he had ever come and maybe would ever come in his life to achieving you know, the music of his mind to use a Stevie Wonder uh, phrase. Uh, and the name of that album, of course, is Blonde on Blonde. And, of course, the irony is that the al- that, that band that I referred you earlier to uh, was none other than the band, then known as Levon and the Hawks, who ended up playing on some of these songs, some of the outtakes. The result, of course, though, is Blonde on Blonde, which many people consider to be the greatest rock album ever released. It was, I believe, the first double album in rock history ever released double studio album ever released although it fits onto one cd these days um i am not going to be the jackass who tries to pretend that blonde on blonde isn't a classic isn't one of the greatest albums ever released i will say this that there are moments where you feel that dylan is flying so free with his lyrical vision with his sort of almost you know he, he, he's working on, on an unconscious level. It's almost like automatic writing or mm-hmm. automatic speech. Mm-hmm. And that results in songs that I think are subpar. I don't think Pledging My Time or Temporary, like Achilles. Um, if I'm being brutal, I would even say that Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat isn't a particularly I great agree. song. The blues songs just don't seem to have any real place on this album. uh, And I also – I hate Rainy Day Women, uh, the the song that opens the album. Everybody must get stoned. Everyone knows it. I don't like it. It's a hit. It's famous. It's a novelty song. It's the closest that Bob Dylan ever came to Yellow Submarine, Hmm. in my opinion. Um, But what else am I going to say? How am I going to criticize Visions of Johanna? How am I going to criticize One of Us Must Know Sooner or Later? I Want You Stuck Inside of Mobile – You know, just like a woman, Uh, you know, most likely you go your way and I go mine. I could just name, just run down the list of the songs on the album. It's it's repetitive and stupid for me to do so. I will only say this: that uh, I have had this argument with my brother, I've had this argument with my father, I've had this argument with my friends, and I still think that if you put a gun to my head and made me choose the single greatest song that Bob Dylan ever wrote or recorded. It would be stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis oh, that Blues is a again. Great song.
2: Take it, someone take it away. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say, I, I, you know, there's too many songs here to go through all of them. Obviously, but um, you had to mention yet "Sad-eyed Lady" of the Lowlands, which was the opposite of Des- Desolation Row in in content but also the album closer that was 11 minutes plus. And to me, I think it's like, again, as I said, Dylan kind of opened my eyes, and I think a lot of people's eyes to writing about love in an incredibly lyrical, non-traditional format. And it's just, I mean, I think the story goes that he holed up in a hotel room for a night to write this for the woman who'd eventually become his wife, Sarah. Uh, And it's just, it's, it's incredibly literate. And this is my Dylan hot take about Blonde on Blonde is, uh how verbose and literate and almost um not shouty but the way his vocal delivery is almost frantic at times to me is like this is ex- extremely hot take is like i draw, in my mind i draw a direct uh, direct line to nick cave um especially mm-hmm. latter-day nick cave with how just the he he the words just pour out of out of his like it's just incredibly literate. It's almost like he's a novel he's a novelist who is writing songs, and that's the case with a lot of the songs on here. Um, but I agree with you about rainy day women. But it's fun. It's fun as hell. Like I'm not going to deny that it is a little weird because it's, it's totally different than the rest of the record. But overall, a uh, couple points that I wanted to make is one for me. This is the album where Bob. Discovered that sort of snarling, stereotypical voice that he yes. that you know people mockingly do, but it's got yes. that you know, like every song. If you go through the track list, you could just in your head right now do the stereotypical voice, like everybody must get
0: stoned, and, and then Pledging, and pledging my, my, time, pledging and, my and time, time, my time, yes,
2: yes, and the visions of Johanna, You know, like every <laughs> single song has that that inflection, and it's so iconic. And and it's obviously a creation of Bob's. It's not something that like nobody sings like that normally. You have to have you know you have to have been dropped on your head a couple of times to sing like that if that's your normal singing voice or you but. get
1: whacked out on, on enough drugs. Uh,
2: yeah i mean the i, I really, is, really
1: do feel like like he was feeling the painkillers and the you know something was going on there because he brought that same approach to the tour afterwards
2: yeah that's right yeah and it was just it's it's like almost lethargic but also like i keep using the word searing because it's like he's angry but he's also really tired um and then one song that i really really loved uh, actually, uh, Visions of Johanna is in my five, uh, full disclosure. But the other sort of, well, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a love song, Just Like a Woman, because it makes it, like, as I've gotten older, it makes me uncomfortable, even though I love it so much, because it it does, in a way that Neil Young's Man Needs a Maid kind of underscores, like, this late 60s, unknowing sort of misogyny, <laughs> um, this sort of, like, condescension towards the woman he's writing about,
1: Oh, I don't uh, think there's anything annoying about it at all. When you say that you break like a little girl, I mean, Dylan knows what he's saying. Right? I
2: mean, he's clearly he's clearly talking to a woman and not women in general. To me, it's just like, I, man, I, that's a, that that's that's a
1: bitter bitter pill to swallow. I would trust never want in, to argue dressed up them. in the sweetest music
2: imaginable. Yeah, exactly, and that, that that's like. Uh, that's what make uh, same thing with uh, with man needs a maid, Neil Young. It's like it's beautiful music, but it's like, oh my god, you're you're really going after this one particular woman, and it's like I would never want to be married to you and argue with you, because good God, <laughs> you would absolutely destroy me in two seconds. Um, but like yeah, I mean, just like a woman and Vincent Johanna to me are just absolutely gorgeous songs, despite my uncomfortableness with sort of the slight misogyny.
3: Ain't Mary, she's my friend. Yes, I believe I'll go see her again Nobody has to guess That baby can't be blessed Till she finally sees that She's like all the rest With her fog, her amphetamine and her pearls, She takes just like a woman yes she makes love just like a woman yes she does and she aches just like a woman but she breaks just like a little girl
2: And absolutely sweet marie i don't think anybody's mentioned that's another really good one but that's like a great one. as i'm sitting here listening all these songs again i can only hear in my head just him delivering the most likely you go your way and i go man like
4: it's just <laughs> it's so it's so yeah,
2: also yeah the organ man like the organ on this album is so like jingle jangling circusy at times it's almost like surrealistic a lot of the poetry here is surrealist uh you know like obviously he's continuing the ginsburg stuff here but it's just an incredibly literate rock and roll album and like nobody really i guess the person trying to do that now is father john misty but he's like you know he he, because it's not Bob Dylan, he generates so much eye rolling, and also because he tries a little too hard. I would I would say, but like, I don't think anybody's really put out this literate an album, other than it might, like I said, Nick Cave. Like, just each song almost feels like a novel, and how much how verbose it is, and how much, how he can he fits that verbosity into such like boisterous just rock and roll music it's it's just uh, it gives me chills how good it is
1: <laughs> but but it doesn't feel like an over long novel it no, doesn't feel yeah. like it doesn't feel like um I'm trying to think who's my fa- My least favorite like New York novelist I think it's probably like Jonathan Safran 4 All right, it's not like one of those awful novels by him Yeah, it, it, it's, a no, it's he's a, not he's not smirking
2: it, the whole time he's delivering he's not like being like look how awesome I am it's, it's
1: exactly visions of Johanna all those those images you know like in this room the heat pipes just cough we've all been in that room that yeah. old kind of like lofted building that was built in like you know the early 1900s and like, you know, the heating and the cooling is just like really sketchy. And you hear like the rumbling of the sounds, you know, from down in whatever the boiler room is. That's just a perfect image, a perfect, well observed image, a writerly image. And yet, he not only comes up with that writerly image, but he fits it within the scansion of a song, of mm-hmm. the beautiful tune.
3: Let's flicker from the opposite love. In this room the heat pipes just cough The country music station plays soft But there's nothing, really nothing to turn off Just Louise And her lover so entwined And these visions of Johanna my mind.
1: He's no longer pirating folk melodies. You know, all the, that's the thing about you know people get on Dylan for like freewheeling times they are changing even on another side and even parts of uh, uh, bringing it all back home. You know those melodies they all come out of the folk song book that he just basically pirated and repurposed. Um, but these are new songs. These are new melodies. These are nobody wrote these before Bob Dylan wrote these. These arrangements are his and his alone. And he does that on Visions of Johanna in a way that. Um, no one has ever done since, which is why I completely understand why you would single that out as the best song on this record.
0: The heights of Blonde on Blonde, I think, reach reach the heights of Highway 61. I think Jeff's right. There's some stuff that, that is not quite on the same level, which, which takes it down a peg or two in, in, in my book, but this is... This is some great music. And and Andrew made just a fantastic point. uh, Fantastic because I was about to make it um, on the Dylan Dylan phrasing and and the word. Yes, pledging my time. And uh, absolutely sweet Marie with some of the uh, unique uh, kind of pausing and phrasing. And, you know, anybody can be just like me, obviously. Uh, Then again, not uh, too many can be like you, fortunately. Those, Those little Dylan pauses and the inflections that all comes to the forefront here. Uh, Absolutely, Sweet Marie is a is a great song. It, it includes so much of what Dylan was about. You know, the, the writing, a little bit of humor, that delivery. There's even harmonica on that song too. Uh, if you're going to try, George to Harrison s- would model his entire late Beatles and solo career off of that song. Yeah.
1: By the way, he was so inspired by Absolutely Sweet Marie to the point where he performed it at the Bob Dylan tribute concert <laughs> on 1993.
3: <laughs> can be like you, fortunately. Well, six white horses that you did promise were finally delivered down to the penitentiary. But to live outside the law, you must be honest. I know you always say that you agree All right, so where are you tonight, sweet Marie?
1: That's how much you love that song, and it
0: sounds like him too, now that I hear it. I always hear George Harrison singing it in my mind. If you're going to try to sell me that Blonde on Blonde is is at the same level as Highway 61, you're going to do it with that middle section from One of Us Must Know through I Want You into Stuck Inside of Mobile. But that's Those three songs, man, when I get there, I think, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the best Dylan album, and then I, I change my mind again, and it's Highway 61. But um, One of Us Must Know is 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 tremendous uh this burned out relationship story i think it's the first song recorded i think the only song that they took with them from those new york sessions um is a wonderful piano uh griffin's playing it this holds everything together he's up and down the keyboard in the chorus there's a wonderful piano figure to kind of link things inside soaring chorus. great song
3: and then you told me later i apologized that you were just kidding me, you weren't really from the farm, and I told you as you clawed out my eyes that I never really meant to do you any harm. Did what you're supposed to do. Sooner or later, one of us must know that I really did try to get close to you.
0: I want you. Is probably the best effort—not that he was trying to do so—but the, the 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 best effort, like a three-minute pop song, almost uh, playful lyrics, uh, you know, a, a repetitive chorus, even a very pretty bridge in in "I Want You." And then Jeff has already talked about "Stuck Inside," or at least mentioned "Stuck Inside" at Mobile with the Memphis Blues. Again, man, that is such a great song. You can hear—I mean, you can just hear Dylan pushing that band in in different directions as that song unfolds and that repeat it oh mama can this really be the end um if you've heard some of the uh uh outtakes you know some of the first attempts you can tell Dylan's having problems trying to work his words into the tempo and the tempo changes to the uh to the final version but those that three song you know sweet in the middle there that you know if you're gonna sell me that's that's where you want to go I think that's the strongest part of the album thing
1: about Stuck Inside a Mobile is that it's one of those songs where the, this box set, the Cutting Edge, that was the Bootleg series was released, is so wonderful because you hear the of painful evolution of that song. They worked on it in so many different forms. If you hear the early versions of it, it's clunky. It, 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 you, you, the final version is so sprightly. You know, Dylan's harmonica just fires up and the, the acoustic guitar starts strumming. It's like a train rolling down the tracks. And you think, well, the, well how, how self assured. But if you hear the early versions that were tuning on it, they didn't have any idea how this arrangement was supposed to work out. He had just brought it in and you know, said, hey, guys, take a hack at it, see right. what you could do with it. And it was only by, like, you know, doing like 14 straight takes on it that they finally evolved it into its final form. And the, the amazing part about it is that it's only on the last three f- takes of it that they finally figured it out. Then You know, who knows? They must have paused the tape, you know, taken like, you know, a cigarette break and, and decided, hey, let's try this a little brisker tone. But that's what the Blonde on Blonde sessions are about. They're about um, finding the right kinds of musicians to mm. play these songs and push them into a shape that would, that, you know, has, that exhibits the kind of patience that Dylan would, would never again, again have.
3: Ah, the bricks lay on Grand Street where the neon madmen clam. They all fall there so perfectly. It all seems so well-timed And here I sit so patiently Waiting to find out what price You have to pay to get out of Going through all these things twice Wow my Is this really the end To be stuck here inside a mobile with the Memphis Blues again
1: You also see that in some of the outtakes. One of the things that for hardcore Dylan fans is is as painful as it gets is there's a song called She's Your Lover Now, which I think is maybe one of his two or three greatest outtakes of all time, that very nearly made it onto Blonde on Blonde, but they never quite completed a full take of it. Dylan finally just got bored of trying to do it over and over again but you hear this first done with levon and the hawks over in new york and it's ponderous and slow it's this this, you know it's just kind of you know sort of leaden ballad driven by piano and then he brings the whole band uh, literally the entire group you know everyone who would end up on music from big pink plays on it and they, they, they routine it, they routine it, and suddenly it becomes this very quick, sprightly-sounding thing that you hear on songs like One of Us Must Know sooner or later, which has a lot of members of the band, except for uh, Paul Paul Griffin is playing the piano on that, not uh, Richard Manuel. Um, and he gets right to the final verse, and then he he, he, he screws up the the verse. He he, he flubs the lyric, and then he says, no, 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 cut it off. And that's it. They just left it. They just left it and moved on to something else. And it's one of the great lost outtakes of Dylan's career. Ah! Which is kind of an example of how he had a limited amount of patience for trying to work songs out in this context. But when he did, with songs like Stuck Inside of Mobile, or with I Want You, which is actually kind of an afterthought to these sessions, the last song recorded. Or with Visions of Johanna, another song that he spent... Really a long amount of time, longer than he ever would in subsequent albums, recording and re-recording and trying in 16 different ways. He ended up with, with truly magical music, and I think it was just a combination of luck, also time and place and having the right uh, the right sidemen, the right producer, and probably being in the right frame of mind because I feel like mentally he was really detached from these sessions. You don't get to the kind of place that Dylan is in with this sort of worldwide and, and critical mass surrounding him uh, without being able to develop these semi-detached poetic lyrics that exhibit uh you know know, we look at desolation row and i talked about how it exhibited ennui this has moved beyond ennui to sort of like you know I, i i'm i'm I've got ennui with my ennui, and now I'm just going to be playful and silly and, and kind of live in my psychedelic wonderland. And you listen to Blonde on Blonde and you wondered, could this continue? What would happen next? What would happen next? Well, famously, what happened next is that he went out on the road with the band, or Levon and the Hawks at this time. They were just Bob Dylan's backing band. Did a tour of Australia, and then famously he did a tour of Great Britain. And it didn't go so well. Uh, He played an acoustic (laughs) set, and it was actually, I think, kind of boring. I'm not a fan of his acoustic sets during that era. And then after playing some very weird and alienating songs acoustically, no protest music, but mind you, just stuff from Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 and Bringing It All Back Home, then he played uh, an acoustic, uh, an electric set with the band, and he got roundly booed. Uh, because in britain lots of trotskyites uh tankies lots of angry political people whose last image of dylan had been the times they are changing uh they were always a little bit behind uh the american uh, audience in this sense uh thought of him as a horrible sellout and uh he was playing some of the hottest music of his life. You could argue this is the best live Dylan that ever exists in 66. We talked about it on our band episode, um, but it didn't go over well at the time, even though he was making classic music. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to say anything about the 66 tour uh, before we move on to what happens next. I
2: think the only thing else about it is, um, I mean, that, turned me, watching, especially uh, No Direction Home, that section about that particular Royal Albert Hall show, which actually wasn't at Royal Albert Hall, um, is, I mean, first of all, it's just, yeah, you're right. I I think it's unmatched in terms of of just live music, live performance, and just a sort of a middle finger to to an audience that wasn't quite receptive to what he was doing and just playing the hell out of the songs. Um, But one of the things about that, Tour that I think is interesting is the famous Judas moment, which inevitably comes up whenever anybody talks about it, is, you know, at the end of uh, at the end of, I guess it was like a Rolling Stone, oh no, at the end of uh, Battle of a Thin Man so they're sort of milling about on stage and then uh, famously, according to the edit that Scorsese made, and this has been disputed and this is something interesting that we could probably even do a whole episode on, but we're not going to um, it was, you know, somebody in the shout, in the crowd shouting Judas and then him allegedly responding based on the editing I don't believe you, you're a liar and then it's unclear but the, the, the edits of Scorsese made in the footage makes it look like he turns to the band and says play it loud and then they just launch into a searing version of like a rolling stone and I, I just find that that to be one of the Coolest, but also yes. weirdest examples of Dylan being mythologized. Because
0: I wish it happened that way. I, 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 yeah,
2: <laughs> you want it to happen that way, but it's like it's unclear because also like his mouth isn't moving in the video when when he says "play f- loud" and like you don't know what's going on. And also like did he really hear the guy say Judas and why would he respond with I don't believe you you're a liar and there's a le- allegedly somebody else in the crowd of course somebody at the time or later on said that somebody else had said something to him and you can't hear it on the recording but he heard them say something like you know I'm, I'm leaving or something and he said I don't believe you're a liar whatever it is it's like let's just go with it already at this point it's such a great myth about him it's such a, it's such it like fomented the the myth I mean the the image of of Dylan just being like I don't, I don't give a rat's ass what you guys think of me.
1: Have I'm you ever the seen Rockable. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? No. When the legend becomes history. Print the legend. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's basically <laughs> what happens on the Royal Albert Hall concert, even to the, even to the point of changing the venue. Because, like, I think it happened in Manchester, right? Yep.
4: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but
1: the Royal Albert Hall, of course, is a far more prestigious venue. So they transferred it several hundred miles down from Manchester to London. I don't know if it really happened that way. But we have the recording. The, the edit is, is – there's no edit. I mean, you really, it really happened the way it is if you hear the tape. Um, the reason the video sounds edited is because there wasn't video of that actual specific performance. Right, yeah. Of course he had to, to play games with it. Um, but anyways, that music is amazing. And we all, we all know this, but uh, it was pretty obvious that the uh, pressure was getting to Dylan you uh, and, and probably drugs too. I'm going to just submit this that, Drug addiction, pills particularly, were becoming a huge part of his life and uh, becoming the kind of thing that was easy to lose yourself in. And I think Dylan, being the smart guy he is, being the self-aware and self-possessed guy he is, understood that. So when he suffered a minor motorcycle accident uh, up in upstate New York in Woodstock, uh, he had his manager, Albert Grossman, inflated into like a serious life-threatening injury. Oh, Bob Dylan broke his back, broke his neck and you know, he won't be making public appearances from now on for the foreseeable future. In reality, I think Dylan was being very smart and ducking this giant tsunami wave of, you know, people telling him that he was the future of protest music. Even now, where he was the voice of a generation, that you know, everything he said out of his mouth was like spun gold and that he had to be, you know, everything that he did, said, or, you know, every appearance he made in public had some sort of significant meaning. He hated that. So what did he do? He just holed up in a big, ugly house that was painted pink in Woodstock, New York with the guys from his touring band uh, who ended up becoming a group that you may have heard of called The Band and uh, recorded something that has now just as equally gone down and legend is blonde on blonde and it's the basement tapes and now this is technically released in some adulterated form in 1975 and we talked about it a little bit on our band episode but does anybody want to offer their quick takes on the voluminous seven discs worth of material on the 1967 era basement tapes Bob Dylan and his friends stoned talking about taking their potatoes down to get mashed (laughs)
2: Uh, I think that well, the next album we're gonna talk about I would say is the beginning of all country. Um, but this album there's so many great moments on it, obviously, and there's a lot of really funny moments and a lot of toss away moments, but I think the the only underlying take I have here is like the birds could just sh- forever indebted to Bob Dylan and the band for the for like so many songs on here that became to yeah. me like great bird songs. I mean, You Ain't Going Nowhere yep. was so we of the rodeo, like the B would be a B plus instead of an A. And
1: it, then Nothing and Was half. Delivered is the last one. Nothing song Was on Delivered, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly, yeah.
3: Clouds so swift, rain won't lift, gate won't close, ratings froze. Get your mind off winter time. you ain't going nowhere.
2: Uh, And then also Tears of Rage, which was, I think, done better by the band. Um, Right. uh, There's just so many. uh, Actually, yeah, music from Big Pink also is heavily indebted to the the sessions here. Uh, But like one of the songs on here that for me is underrated and kind of forgotten, but I think is really, really gorgeous and unusual for him because it was the first time he was sort of mentioning geographical locations that I guess normally he wouldn't have is going to Acapulco, um, which I just think is a beautiful song. um, And kind of, for me, foreshadows a little bit desire in the 70s, but um, I will say that just, it's one of, in the I'm Not There film, Todd Haynes' movie, the very uh, incredible, I loved it, but it's not for everybody, obviously, but there's a scene where Jim James from My Morning Jacket is singing and going Acapulco, and I think it's like one of the best uses of Bob Dylan's music in, in In film, and I know that's an extremely hot take, but that's pretty much all I have to say about the Basement Tapes because it's there's just so much going on there. Yeah, I mean,
1: you could do an episode talking about like each particular disc or recording session of the Basement Tapes. That's not going to be this
2: show, though, Scott.
1: Oh yeah, Andrew, you had a thought? No, No, that's it.
0: All right, Scott? Yeah, Mike, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the in the program, I have n- I have not, I'm not a Dylan completist in that I've not heard everything that's been released. I have not heard all of the basement tapes, certainly not all seven. Um, my reflection largely actually is with, with Andrew. A lot of the stuff that I've gone back to here is, is things that have been covered elsewhere. And to that end, the stuff the birds did, and as it was mentioned, you ain't going nowhere and nothing was delivered from Sweetheart of the Rodeo. You know, I, I love Sweetheart of the Rotary, one of my entry points into that, that kind of music. So hearing, you know, the original versions and the original Dylan performance is very interesting. Uh, but, you know, the rest, uh, you know, we talked about it a bit on the, on the band episode and how they played into it, but I, I've i come nowhere near to hearing all the basement tapes.
2: Oh, also, don't forget uh, Quinn the Eskimo, another band, yeah. uh, Manford Man can thank Bob Dylan for... Uh Quinn the Eskimo was recorded during the basement tape session which also yes. I think the Mighty Quinn I think is like a, a real it's strange and funny song but I think it's one of his better uh, his better goofy tunes
4: yeah his better
1: goofy tunes and I actually liked his version of it from the um, uh, Iowa White festival which yeah, yeah. is something that we may have to discuss in a later episode but I think to me the most there are so many of course Grail Marcus wrote an entire freaking book about the basement tapes called Invisible Republic. So there's nothing we could say about them that's going to add to that. Although I will point out that Marcus, as a talented a writer as he is, sometimes gets out over his skis in my opinion. Uh, but for me, if we're going to have one takeaway from the basement tapes, and we've talked – again, I, I feel confident doing this because we did talk a lot about them on our band episode. The The takeaway for me in terms of Dylan is – how remarkable it is that he spent, you know, the better part of a year recording all of these fantastic tunes, tunes that he knew well were good enough to give to other artists. Fairport Convention, again, famously did a bunch of them. They did Million Dollar Bash. Um, you know, Quinn the Eskimo was done by Manfred Mann. I Shall Be Released, Tears of Rage, This Wheel's on Fire. They all, those all went to the bend. These, nothing, um, uh, too much of nothing, I think, was done by. Uh, was it Peter, Paul, and Mary? Um, a lot of these songs went on to other people. They handed them out as, as demos on purpose. Dylan knew that they were good. And yet not a single one of them, not a single song recorded at any point during these basement tape sessions made it on to his next album, which is the album we're going to end this episode with because it really is, in a way, the end of one era and the beginning of another era. And that's John Wesley Harding which he recorded in 1967. A lot of people think of it as a 1968 album, but it was released in December of 1967, right before the end of the year. Um, I almost think of the Basement Tapes in a way as Dylan sort of gathering his strength, playing around with his sort of fun-time music. Yeah, the idea of Tears of Rage being a fun-time song is kind of amazing or I Shall Be Released being a, a throwaway song is amazing. But he was working in these genres, kind of finding these old folk tunes, going back to the the real ancient American and English songbook, and he was using all that stuff that he was recording as demos and as sort of you know you know messing around music, and then on on the side he was writing these tunes that would result in. What I consider, and I know I am in a minority on this, and I talked about it on Twitter and people make fun of me. In fact, one of my old friends, John, who I talked about earlier, but the times they are changing, made fun of me when I pointed that out on Twitter. He's like, Jeff, you've had this opinion since high school, and it's been wrong since high school. I think John Wesley Harding is the best album that Bob Dylan would ever record. And I know that's a very uncharacteristic album, but I think it's spare, it's concise, it's gnomic, It doesn't explain itself. It lets you parse its meanings out. It has these biblical overtones that I find to be ultimately incredibly compelling. Um, It's everything that I want music to be, lyrically and then musically as well. Um, There are so many songs on this that are perfect all along the Watchtower of course, is the most famous. But I will be honest in saying that everybody, when we did our covers episode, we canvassed our former guests and said, oh, your favorite covers. Of course, lots of them mentioned Jimi Hendrix's version of All in the Watchtower. I think Dylan's is better. I think Dylan's original version is far better than Hendrix's version. Agreed. I like Hendrix's version. It's great. I'm not saying it's bad, but I love the fire and brimstone, the old time religion, you know. Preaching of that original Dylan acoustic take of All On the Watchtower, which feels like the seventh seal. It feels like the apocalypse. It feels like you know the the four horsemen are coming and bad things are coming. And that to me is much more impressive than the pyrotechnics of Hendrix's version.
3: All along the watchtower, princes kept the view. Barefoot servants too. Outside, in the distance, a wild cat did growl. Two riders were approaching. The wind.
1: But of course, almost every other song on this album is beautiful as well. Drifter's escape is a quiet moment. Help me in my weakness, I heard the drifters say. Lightning crashes into the, the courthouse and he makes his escape. It's an uplifting song. The one that I still to this day has the most meaning for me is, again, one of my maybe all-time five favorite songs, not just for this era, but of all time is Dear Landlord, mm-hmm. which, which ends with it's Dylan on the Piano ironically enough playing a very beautiful simple piano tune and he ends with this couplet which I think is maybe one of the best things although it's so spare and so simple that he ever wrote which is that each of us has his own special gift and you know this was meant to be true so if you don't underestimate me I won't underestimate you and it ends on this unresolved chord which almost poses a question as to what you what are you going to do what are you who hears this going to do What are you going to do in your life? This is spiritual music before Dylan got explicitly spiritual. This is so spare. This is the opposite of what I am. I'm verbose and I can't shut up about it. I love it that much. This album is shorter than my commentary on it, which is another great aspect of it. Please, somebody (laughs) take,
2: take, take the lead. Take it away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the thing that's, Really, uh, the point to be made about his lyricism here—there's a couple, actually. I mean, you've already made them, but um, obviously, it's very spare. It's a it's a country folk. You know, it clearly feels like it was recorded in in and in Woodstock. Um, And like I said earlier, to me, this is the first alt country record. That's uh, you know, it predates "Sweetheart of the Rodeo." It predates uh, "American Beauty." To me, this is the beginning of alt country. It's the beginning of weird Americana. Uh, cosmic American music, and uh, the lyrics, though, it's a return to pre-searing rock and roll Bob Dylan, blues-influenced rock and roll Bob Dylan. It's a return to the folk Dylan, but with a sort of an imagination that he didn't possess five years before. Um, and the ability to reference, you know, St. Augustine, which I was in my five, uh, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine just because it's so lilting and, and beautiful. And it was like the song that captured me and convinced me about this album uh, was I dreamed I saw St. Augustine. And it references, you know, Roman figures and, and Greek philosophers and, uh, you know, talks about, uh, you know, mob mentality. And it's just, and it, it, I think it even cribs from a Woody Guthrie song a little bit too. And it, it's just, it's, it's like he, he figured out the code to country rock and to all country in this very, very concise manner. I
3: dreamed I saw St. Augustine Alive with fiery breath And I dreamed I was amongst the ones That put him out to death I put my fingers against the glass And bowed my head and prayed
2: And the thing about all the water the wash shower that I'll add is um, another hot take, uh, but not really that hot, because it, I mean... it Music theory-wise, it's true. Is this is in a lot of ways the beginning of, uh, or at least inspired a lot of heavy metal. Um, you know, the 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 six five four descending chord progression was very unusual for Dylan. And I mean, you think about that's the same chord progression of, uh, I guess, Stairway to Heaven. Um, the Who used it a lot. Uh, it's you know, Jimi Hendrix obviously his cover of it is, is is heavy. That's heavy rock and roll. And Sabbath used that progression a lot. And, you know, that was, it was, for me, I think it was kind of daring for Dylan to do it because, you know, the rest of the album is in a pretty standard country folk chord progressions. And then this one song is just in this very, very damning, you know, a song about, I guess it was, it's a biblical reference, the song, and although it's not quite overt, um, but it's just, it's perfectly matched. And uh, another song that doesn't really get talked about a lot that is, to me, I st- I'm still confounded by it to this day is uh, the Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Um, just because I can never tell if he's goofing around with this like sort of tale of uh, this like morality question he poses to the listener based on this anecdote about, uh, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. And, uh, you know, the, the whole thing is confusing and the story is like, you want it, like I want there to be a film adaptation of it just to sort of give it some sort of a- a explanation of like, what is he getting at here? And, I, I'm trying to remember the last line but uh, oh don't go mistaking paradise for that home across that home the, road.
1: Across the that house along the road right it's like
2: you know don't the grass is always greener but like the rest of the song doesn't quite match up with that and yet that makes it more perfect for me it's like it's cryptic Dylan but without the sort of searing you know rock and roll background it's like this is a folk song that is cryptic and and makes you really really think a lot and uh, you know I, I, I've had friends who've said in the past that I think it's cheesy because of you know how it's it's like a you know frankie lee and and judas judas priest i guess that's where they took their name from but you know in hindsight it looks goofy um but i i think it's a fantastic just sort of uh allegory i guess you could say even though we have no idea what it's about well
3: judas he just winked and said all right i'll leave you here but you better hurry up and choose which of those bills you want before they all disappear I'm gonna start my picking right now Just tell me where you'll be Judas pointed down the road Said eternity Eternity, said Frankie Lee With a voice as cold as ice That's right, said Judas, eternity Though you might call it paradise I don't call it anything said frankie lee with a smile all right said judy's priest i'll see you after a while well frankie lee he sat back down
4: feeling low and mean
2: you know obviously you've already mentioned a bunch of the other great ones but the wicked messenger is like you know uh, the black keys sort of brought out the bluesy the the blues rock side of it where they covered it later for the uh, i'm not there soundtrack and then um, i'll be your baby tight is a great closer and it leads to the next album which we'll talk in the next part but it's a really uh you know that is just a straight up country song i did he record this album in nashville i should have yeah uh, he
1: did he did he yeah. went down to nashville with with all these lyrics that had written up in new york and you know he, he's so modest about it he's always been cryptic about this like you know no, people have asked him i'm sure like well why didn't you record any of this when you were doing like, you know, the basement tape sessions. And he's just like, yeah, you know, I just wrote these lyrics out. I didn't have music yet. It's like, I just invented the music on the spot. is basically his yeah. excuse. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, I don't, but, know
1: if, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a great story.
2: <laughs> but the, the, the only, the, the other thought that I had whenever I think about this album, and I, I've thought this for a long time, is that it's hobo music. And I, I don't know why I think that maybe it's the album cover. Maybe it, it, it just, it's it's like the closest Dylan ever got in my mind to that image in his head that he always had of being the guy riding the rails, just singing some old Western cowboy tunes. Um, you know, he I think he envisioned Guthrie being like that, but I think he got closer to sort of outlaw iconic old Western music. This is like, you know, hippie cowboy music, essentially. And he invented a whole genre I call it chillbilly. Uh, and I think that's that's this is the beginning of it.
0: Well, I, I hate to end the episode this way, although we still have our songs and albums. But I, I I'm not uh, on the same page with you two on on John Wesley Harding the album. I, I never thought a ton of it, and then I, you know, we email back and forth, and I know Jeff's a huge, huge fan. So I'm, I'm going to give it. Two more shots, and it still is just not resonating with me the right way. It's not bad. That's all right, the, the new host of political beats, an <laughs> Andrew Carell, <laughs> joining us. Thanks. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad, guys. But um, I don't, I don't love the production on it. It, it sounds a bit thin to me, the weak and thin. The bass and drums are there, but really buried in the back, and I'm not. I don't love that sound. Um, you know, the songs that themselves, uh, I actually. I kind of like Drifter's Escape, uh, which is a, uh, a story about a, a convicted drifter who, who escapes after a lightning bolt hits the courthouse. I kind of like that. Um, but I, I don't think it really kicks into gear until the final two songs, which are accompanied by uh, Pedal Steel from Pete Drake. And, and that really, you know, I, I like, I we'll talk about this next time, but I like Nashville Skyline better. I like New Morning even better uh, than, than this album. Uh, but, but Down Along the Cove, has a looseness and a, and, a, and a fun quality to it that's missing from uh, a lot of the other songs I think on the album. And I'll be your baby tonight is just fantastic, uh, simple country western, almost like a, a Hank Williams homage um, that mm-hmm. that Dylan's doing with I'll be your baby tonight. I really like those last two songs. I wish more of the album were sort of in that in that vein. I, I'd get my wish. I think you know coming soon. So I, I'm not uh, I'm not telling you you're you're completely wrong, but I I, I just think it's a um, it's almost a regrouping you know after this time off uh, before he sort of figures out uh, with Nashville skyline taking it to to another sort of plateau.
1: Leaving aside
0: the historical
1: malpractice, uh, I don't think Dylan would write a more painfully moving lyric than the ending of "I dreamed I saw Saint Augustine." Yeah. That last verse where he says, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine alive with fiery breath, and I dreamed that I was among the ones who put him out to death. I awoke in anger, alone and so afraid. I put my head against the window and I bowed my head and prayed. Um, That is just the spareness, the perfect observation of those lyrics, the recognition that, you know, you can be among the mob that betrays a saint, a true good man, uh, and puts him to death. You know, basically the same kind of mob that crucified Christ, for example, or, you know, any other number of saints. Or even, to the, you know, to the present day, these, these social media mobs that just go gang up on people for no other reason than it's the thing to do. That's an eternally relevant song. That's, again, right up there with uh, Dear Landlord or Wicked Messenger, or Drifter's Escape, or even I Pity the Poor Immigrant. These songs just keep going on, and it's because Dylan edited himself in a way that he never really had before. It was so different from Blonde on Blonde, and I think would never edit himself quite in the same way again. Uh, he, so many fantastic albums that are coming down the pike, but this is unique. There's nothing else in his entire discography that sounds like John Wesley Harding. And yes, it's spare. It's not this kaleidoscopic, you know, panorama of sound and, you know, lyrical vision that it blonde on blonde is. It's not the hard rock of highway 61. It's not the protest folk of freewheel. And it's something very sui generis, but I think it's Dylan at, 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 at least from my mind, at least at his best, maybe in a way his weirdest. And, uh, You know, I recognize the fact that that not everyone's necessarily going to agree with us about that, and that's fine, uh, because it's my damn show, so you just have to (laughs) suck it up and deal with it, buddy. Uh, Anyways, we have arrived at the point, after a long journey through only the first seven years of Bob Dylan's career, at that moment where we ask our guests to name. From this era, at least, of Bob Dylan's career, there are two key albums and five key songs. As always, we start with our guest, Andrew Carell. What are your choices?
2: Uh, Two key albums, Highway 61 Revisited and John Wesley Harding. Uh, So I'm definitely with you on that one. Um, And then the five songs, uh, incredibly difficult to narrow down, obviously, and I limited myself. I said no more than one song per album if I end up you know, and there's more than five albums here, so you can't even pick one from each album. Um, so I just thought with, you know, what songs would I rave about the most, even though I don't have favorites necessarily. And for me, it's Visions as Johanna from Blonde on Blonde, It's Alright Mom Only Bleeding, uh, Highway 61 Revisited, which I talked about at length before, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, and then an outtake, which we didn't get to talk about, uh, Mama You have Been On My Mind, which was on, I think it was an outtake for Another Side of Bob Dylan. And to me, is the for is a it, it's the forbear of uh, what he was able to do on Blood on the Tracks, which I keep coming back to is what the foreshadowing of Blood on the Tracks was. But just the ability to talk about a left behind affair of his life and uh, be so self aware when talking about you know how a failed love, you know, just talking about failed love in a way where he he knows he's a culprit. And uh, one of my favorite lines is a. Uh, I'm not asking you to say words like yes or no I'm just breathing to myself pretending not that I don't know It's just it's so lyrical and, and the melody's beautiful I love the chord progression And uh, it's one of those It's probably my favorite outtake from this period And it just, it's it stuck with me In terms of both writing about lost love And also just great, great friggin' folk tune
3: I'm not asking you to say words like yes or no Please understand me I have no place I'm calling you to go I'm just whispering to myself So I can't pretend that I don't know Mama, you're on my mind
0: God. Uh my two albums are uh Highway Sixty One uh, Revisited and And blonde on Blonde, the back to Back Albums. Uh Songs, I think we discussed all of these in depth. So uh from uh Freewheel and Bob Dylan, don't think twice. Um from another um another side, uh It's all over now, baby blue. From Highway 61, I take two tracks. Like a Rolling Stone, yes, everyone knows it, but I still think it's, you know, integral that you hear it if you haven't for whatever strange reason. And uh, to Jeff's chagrin, I think Ballad of a Thin Man is also on my list. And then from uh, Blonde on Blonde, uh, One of Us Must Know. Those are my five. Jeff, to you. Well, I realized I intended to pick
1: Blonde on Blonde as one of my two favorites, but I realized when I was coming up with my five key tracks that the answer really had to be the one that I loved first my first love uh, as a child so my first key album is bringing it all back home um it's the album that really hooked me on dylan and made me realize that the, the, the depths were just endless you could dive into this pool and never surface if you wanted to and of course my second album as i just explained is john wesley harding i think that may be even though i know i'm standing nearly alone here the best album he ever recorded better than Highway 61, better than Blood on the Tracks, better than, why well, it's, it's even better than World Gone Wrong. Um, my five favorite songs, I will start with I Don't Believe You, uh, she acts like we never have met off of another side. Although I, my favorite version of it is actually probably the live 1966 version that he did with the band. Uh, you can find it on the bootleg series, volume four. Uh, my second key song would be love minus zero, no limit. And one of the greatest love songs ever written. It's all over now. Baby blue also from bringing it all back home. One of the greatest kiss off songs ever written. One of the most painful ones as well. Um, stuck inside of mobile with the memphis blues again if i'm gonna pick one song off of blonde on blonde it's that it could be you know his number one track ever and then finally i'll end with dear landlord uh, off of john wesley harding i could pick so many songs off of this record including all on the watchtower or i dreamed i saw saint augustine but dear landlord is the one that i keep finding myself quoting uh in my head in my mind to other people to myself uh, basically adopting as sort of a motto and a way to live my life. And boy, if you can say that about a song lyric, then somebody did a really good job of writing that song lyric.
3: Please don't dismiss my case I'm not about to argue I'm not about to move to no other place Now each of us has his own special gift And you know this was meant to be true And if you don't underestimate me I won't underestimate
0: And that's my opinion of Bob Dylan from nineteen sixty one to nineteen sixty seven You might know that there's a few albums to go. don't worry we're coming back for a part two, and we're coming back for a part three that's the plan uh, right now, but we appreciate you listening to part one. Thank you to our guest Andrew uh, Andrew Carell, senior editor at Daily Beast, covering breaking news, political media, and occasionally music coverage as well. Find him on Twitter at Andrew Carell, and he'll be back for part two. And if he likes us, he'll be back for part three. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Jeff, spend some time with the new baby. Listen to some Dylan. We'll do it again next week. Seems like we're on the hook, at least, until we get the blood on the tracks that much. (laughs) (laughs) Find Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. And uh, my name is Scott Bertram. I'm at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Remember, subscribe, please, to our feed. New episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Monday mornings, and nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts and find our podcast there. Most Mondays, you'll see new episodes. This has been a presentation of National Review. Check us out at, at political underscore beats on Twitter, too. This is Political Beats.